There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Hey everybody, season two of Pardon My Plate, which is probably one of the better things on the internet, is live on YouTube now, hosted by our very own special and lovely and beautiful and who I like to argue with a lot, Spencer Newharth. Last year, you'll remember, I'm pardon my plate. We tried carp, coyote, and coot this season. Get ready for muskrat, which as a kid we called scrats. Crows, bobcats, goldfish, and prepare for this skunk. Yeah, you heard that right. Eaten skunk. So go to our channel on YouTube, subscribe, and watch. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody. Uh, First off, Brad Tennant is here. History professor at Presentation College in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And is described as a Lewis and Clark nerd. <laughs> Do you prefer expert? I, I prefer expert, yeah. What uh did you did you uh did you are you formally educated in Lewis and Clark? Um it's just been something that I've grown up with. I, I grew up about 15 miles from the Missouri River, so Got a very it. historic area. Yep. And uh Lewis and Clark was always part of uh, the history of the area and, and also state history and then as I went into uh, teaching, uh, it was an area that I, I taught quite a bit about. Did you study up on it in school? Like, did uh, you pursue it for any of your degrees? Not so much in school, but it's when I started teaching that I, I really started delving into it a lot more in detail. Uh, Spencer, you found him, right? Yes, he came on a YouTube show that we made um, yeah. looking at Lewis and Clark 
catching catfish. And I consider having Brad on this podcast is like one of my greatest career achievements so far because you don't think Lewis and Clark are all that cool. No, I don't. I think it's big government. <laughs> that's why is. I like, that's why I like free trappers, man. Uh-huh. Well, so what, what is it you don't love about Lewis and Clark? It's big government. Yeah. Like now a couple dudes wandering around out there trapping beavers is cool. You already messed it up, Steve. When you say big government, <laughs> you have to follow it up with, I'm not going to say anything. Just do the research. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's a good point. No, I, I'm mostly joking, but it's like it's just too. Or, it was. Too, I thought it was too organized. Mm. Yeah, but it's like a lot of people too organized. I like the stories about just a couple dudes. Like for instance, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with a fellow named John Coulter, Brad. I am. Uh, um. Now, his first trip out with Lewis Clark, mm-hmm. eh, whatever. <laughs> but before he gets back, he joins up with some trappers. Mm-hmm. And turns around and goes back. That's interesting. But I, I got a question for you. Weren't some of those mountain men involved in some very, very like organized, oh, heavily yeah. manned expeditions too? Well, that's like, why Yanni will now educate you on what a free trapper is. Oh, I will. Well, because you know that guy that used to tell you he's a free I saw. I like to walk around, yeah, saying that we're all free trappers. We do whatever we want to do. But I don't know if I know the definition. You had company in the mountain man area. You had company trappers or brigade trappers, and you had free trappers. And a lot of those famous dudes were both. Both. But linked up with the You usually companies. started as a company trapper, yeah. and then you became a free trapper. Or you could be just a free trapper. And, uh, you know, so when you say, like, if... if uh, you're going out fishing, you know, and your spouse is like, you're what? Hit the dead. You'd be like, I'm a free trapper, bro. Walk out. I'll, I'll keep that in yeah. mind <laughs> next time I go fishing. Now, Brad, we got some other stuff to cover before we get to Lewis and Clark. Like but, Tom, introduce, we got to introduce Tommy. Sure. But to titillate Steve Ooh. for now, what would be like your elevator pitch on why Lewis and Clark are so damn cool? Yeah, that's a good idea. Now that I dogged on him so much. Huh. Well, I, I think it's uh, part of the story that, still residents today that, you know, here we are coming up on 220 years and we're still talking about Lewis and Clark on a podcast. I think that tells you a lot. Uh, it, it's something that has grown because it used to be that you talk about Lewis and Clark expedition leaving the St. Louis area in May of, of 1804 and coming back in September 1806. Now they've extended the Lewis and Clark Trail all the way back to the east. So it covers a lot more states. Uh, goes back to the Ohio Falls when Lewis and Clark first actually joined together as part of this expedition after all the planning. Uh, there's there's just, I always say it's, it's a lot of stories. That's not really just one big story. It's a lot of stories, involves a lot of different people, a lot of different places, a lot of different events. Perfect. And we're going to cover, um, in particular, we're going to, we, I want to talk about the mystery of um, Lewis's death. Yes. Uh, can, can I, can I, so let, before we get into the story, I just want to ask you this, then we're going to move on to some more stuff for a minute. Are you, a, um, and on his death, without telling any of the circumstances, are you lean in suicide or are you lean in murder? I lean suicide. Okay. Yeah. And I, I'm sure there'll be a lot of things that will be discussed today. A lot of things that I'll say that are very controversial. Really? I always tell people that, uh, when you go to a Lewis and Clark conference, the nice thing is that everybody's an expert on Lewis and Clark. The bad thing <laughs> is that everybody's an expert on Lewis and Clark and they never agree. That's what so, I say. That's one of the things uh, I say about Montana is you have an entire state where everyone's a grizzly expert. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, next to you, Brad, is Tommy Edson, who's here for no purpose right now. None whatsoever. <laughs> Tommy, tell them what you do for a living. I move cardboard boxes. 
I work in a big uh, industrial food warehouse. Tommy, get close to that mic as though lapping an ice cream cone. I work in a big industrial food grocery warehouse. And on lunch break, what do you do once a week? Well, it, you, originally it started on lunch break, but yeah, I play. We play meat eater trivia. And and Tommy, me and Tommy are old fishing buddies from from the Pacific Northwest. Tommy's an excellent fisherman. I've said this in the past. I'm gonna just to help tee up Tommy's presence here. I've pointed out multiple times that everywhere you go in this country, everywhere you go, you will find a person who can't who's frustrated because they can't get to it all there's too much to do outdoorsman there's too much to do you can't do it all can't scratch the surface and then next door to him is the guy who everything's ruined the blank are gone yeah fishing game screwed it up the wolves got them all whatever no tommy's the one that can't scratch the surface no. Too much to do. Yeah. And this time of year, especially, it's like I'm frozen with indecision. <laughs> like I, I'll get up in the morning planning to go do one thing, man, and I'll be thinking about doing something else the whole way there. You know. Because there's just so much to do. And Tommy's always sending me his scores for me to eat a trivia. He's here yeah. because we're going to play trivia in a little bit. Yeah. And like last week, he beat me, but Yanni beat him. Yeah. I had seven correct last week. Yeah, Steve's over here spreading all sorts of misinformation that I would have whooped you all every week. That's not true. <laughs> I'll be the first one to set the record straight. Yeah. But he's, I been, did, he's been posting some strong scores. Strong scores, yeah. So we had to have him out just to play in person. Twice yeah. now, strangers have walked up to me. It used to be just, hey, Giannis? You Giannis? Yeah, yeah. Oh, love the content. Great. Now that's changed to, hey, Giannis? Yeah, man, yesterday I would have beat you. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? Okay. That's what the world is these days. Tommy educated me on how to catch surf perch. Love fishing surf perch, man. Yeah. Talking of speaking about Lewis and Clark, even where the trail ends in Seaside, Oregon. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah, I fish surf perch. Man, you a pistol shot from that from that monument. No, oh, yeah. there you go. That's why he's here. Yeah, see there? Uh, Brody's here. Man, that's like a segue. I was yeah, just going to say, see how I tied that all in for you? <laughs> Brody's here. Phil the engineer. Phil, look tight on the haircut, buddy. No, thanks, man. No, that's great. Yeah. Callahan, uh, same haircut as normal. <laughs> it's still growing. <laughs> Spencer, he's, he's already perched up for his trivia show later on, mm -hmm. but he's here because he found our guest. And lobbied, Brad, he lobbied heavily on your behalf. For years. <laughs> for Even years. before we found the official Lewis and Clark historian, I just wanted a Lewis and Clark historian. Now you're the one. And he's like, now I found him. And I think we were talking about sex on the Lewis and Clark trail. Yep. Okay. Uh, That's titillating. And then, of course, Giannis is here. A couple things. Uh, Dustin, uh, recap. We had Dustin Huff on, who just killed the biggest typical, not just, recently killed the biggest typical whitetail ever killed in America. Um. And he was being pretty fast and loose with like landowner names and locations. And we teased him about this and then he thought better of it. And so we ended up bleeping out the landowner names and locations. Then Dustin Huff goes home and posts a screenshot of Onyx showing exactly where he killed. <laughs> so, it, so it's out. It was an Instagram story. It was available for 24 hours. So you got to do some sleuth and... I have a screenshot of it where it's like, here it is. Here's the spot. 
here's where the tree stand was. So he, he, God bless him. I think what Doug Duran said got into his head. Doug's like, you know what? That buck's gone. Was it ever really a secret though? Anyway, no, I mean, come not. on. Probably not. I don't know. The buck's gone. Spencer already angled for permission at the guy's uh, yeah. neighbor's place. Yep, sending letters. How's that trampoline coming, Steve? <laughs> they haven't called yet, man. I was just texting about something different about my my. I was. It's staring. summer break. There's like kid taking care of is real intense right now because it's summer break. Oh my! I was gosh, staring at my so uh, buddy's backyard in in Missoula the other day, and big old trampoline out there. Every little kid's dream. It's just yep. like covered in three inches of old fall foliage. So it lets you know how long it's been sitting there unused. Cal, I can tell you something. Um, I didn't want the trampoline, not for the normal reasons. I think people don't want them because their kids are going to break their arms on them. Yeah. I actually wanted one without the net. Yeah. It's hard to find. But I have, but my wife's like, it has to have the net. Only reason I didn't want it is because I feel like my kids are going to have a hard time mowing underneath it. Well, and the, it's going to obstruct my archery lane. And the whole point of having a trampoline is so you can like jump off of stuff onto the trampoline or jump off the trampoline onto stuff, and you can't do that with the net. So, but I'm telling you, this listeners are probably confused. Steve is getting a trampoline for his kids. That's that's what we're talking. Yeah, about. but here's the thing: I guarantee because there's trampolines in two directions. Two different neighbors <laughs> have them. Our kids live on those trampolines. This trampoline will get heavy use. Yeah, our neighbors got one, which is the perfect place for it. Because yeah. then our kids can use it, and I don't have to have one in my yard. I always like to point out, though, my wife uh, always thinks that what I take the kids to do, she thinks that stuff's dangerous. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Now, every emergency room visit I've gone on, she got him a swing set. It was like two days later. Broken arm. Down the emergency room. Uh, scooters. Stitches. Legos. Stitches. <laughs> every Explain that one. The couch. I don't know. He fell on. He had a Lego on a chair and tripped and landed on it. it gouged a hole in his head. Cal looked at the picture of his head, which had a square hole in it. And Cal's like, "Looks like you could pull a Lego out of there." <laughs> and that was before I knew that it was a Lego. We were in Mexico, but uh, yeah, man, nothing I do ever gets them in trouble. Everything like they get injured by. I guarantee they'll get injured on the trampoline. It's one child out of three though is particularly prone to all that. Yeah, I think everything head, you mentioned is, he gets, one, is no, one kid. No, Jimmy broke his arm on his oh, swing he was, set. Oh. Matthew gets cuts his head open all the time. He's had three rounds of stitches in his head. Speaking of stitches in the head, 400 stitches that that little girl got in her head and body after she got attacked by that mountain lion in Washington. Isn't that crazy? 400. That Washington didn't have a lion fatality for 98 years and then had their first fatality. Now that little girl got scratched up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd call that getting scratched up, maybe a little bit more than scratched up. Mauled up. But what was cool, the reason I'm bringing this up is that uh, Bart George, our buddy that's doing the uh, research on the mountain lions over there in Washington, he invited the nine-year-old girl that got attacked by the lion out on a uh, cat... Uh, part of the study where they capture the lion and then tranquilize it and then take off the collar. The cat was done with its part of the study. And uh, she agreed and she went along. There's a picture of her. And she got to kick it. She got to what? Kick it. Kick the cat while it was down. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, she looked like she was just just ha- happy to be there. But pretty impressive. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I told my daughter. I wonder if that's like, that had to have been like somewhat therapeutic. Exactly. Work through the trauma. Yeah, you hope. What was interesting is I was telling my daughter, who's about the same age, about that, and she's like, wow, that's 
like a lot. That's pretty courageous for that little girl. I don't know if I could do that after being attacked by that same animal. Yeah. It's heavy it sounds duty. strong. The the pictures that went along with that article when it first came out when that whole thing broke, man, they were hard to look at. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Very. Did they catch that lion and kill it? They got they got it on site right then before DFW even showed up. Who did? Her family? I think just some it, people it was, that were there. It was, yeah, it was at a, uh, I believe, Russian uh, Bible camp. And yeah. uh, as my buddy that was one of the first guys on scene there said, he's like, it was the most well-armed Bible camp I've ever been to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah that cat uh he went to the wrong camp yeah 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 um this kind of interesting so we've covered on the show a fair bit like like uh both sides of picking up arrowheads indian arrowheads man fella could make a hell of a segue out of this into into lewis and clark oh and that's up next too. keep that in mind yanni this story has many layers the missouri guy uh-huh so we've covered the impulse, which is I'm no stranger to, is that you're out wandering around, there's a arrowhead sitting there. And you're like, well, Yeah, you're not like anything. Put it in your pocket. Bring it home, put it on a shelf, then it winds up in a whatever. Yep. Box. Uh, we've talked about why that we we've acknowledged the enormous uh sort of like psychological uh, I don't know, gravity, right, that pulls you in that direction. Then we've talked about the reasons one might not do that. And this fellow named Johnny Lee Brown of Clinton, Missouri, just got a little carried away with his arrowhead hunting and is in big trouble. So they were going into prehistoric prehistoric Native American archaeological sites. I think these are all from the archaic period. So 3,000 to 5,000-year-old sites using shovels, rakes, other tools, digging up artifacts. Okay. The name of the site is fantastic as well. Hit us with that. The Tightwad site. Yeah. But it's not because of the site itself. It's because of the name of the town, which is also Tightwad, Missouri, right? I don't know how I never heard of Tightwad, Missouri. Me neither. I'd love to know the... Should have wikipedia that for the background. So this guy, Johnny Lee Brown, who's 70 years old, he's still getting out there for 70. You think like a 70-year-old just kind of calming down on crime. You know, <laughs> don't you? Yeah, I, I think his age is important to point out because, like, what's he got left to lose if he wants to go destroy an archaeological site? There's a lot of you spry, think that's what he thought to himself. Spry Maybe. seventy year old. I'm not. I'm not making an excuse for him, but at seventy, what's a three hundred thousand dollar fine? I think there's still seventy year olds <laughs> running <laughs> running I, I, I don't know about races. that outlook. <laughs> <laughs> 70, still getting out, still getting at it. 70 years old, two co-conspirators, and they start going down to this site. From June, they're just getting in trouble, or just getting, you know, it's finalized, getting finalized now, but they were active from June 2016 through September. Um, Looting these sites, okay? So they believe this is a campsite where they're camping, processing stone. They were using handheld trowels, shovels, rakes, hoes, buckets, and backpacks to take items away from the site. The indictment doesn't say what exactly they did with the stuff. But what they are saying is that this illegal excavation caused $300,000 in damage. And the U.S. Attorney's Office in Kansas City is after the guy. Oh, there's, there's a... 
a, a bunch of like interesting tidbits in that story where they're like, sometimes they'd be at the site for 10 minutes. Hmm. Other times, you know, like many hours, uh, which, but at the same time, they don't know exactly what they got away with. I'm like, well, how'd you know the timelines and and not know what they got? They don't know uh, where a lot of what they got ended up, like how, how they, it was fenced or moved or stored. Did it say how they got nabbed, how they got caught, someone turned them in or? I, I think that must be it. I mean, there's there's a lot of some, there's some sort of fuzzy documentation there that is probably going to come out once the case is fully prosecuted. Yeah. I would imagine because like reading through the story, you're like, how, like how, how do you know and not know is what kind of the, the story reads, but it does overlap with, um, a lot of interesting pending legislation that's coming down the pipe right now, as far as, uh, you know, better, uh, protections for, cultural sites on public ground on, on federally managed ground, state managed ground. I'm reading Carl Malcolm's favorite book. He always, he always likes to cringe when I say it's his favorite book, <laughs> but, uh, he turned, <laughs> there's a book called black range tales. Oh yeah. 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 It's, it's mostly like the memoirs and recollections of a miner, a prospector and miner who was active in the 1880s down in New Mexico in the black range, but all around that area. What's funny about it is the first page. Oh, I can't say this. Never mind. Never mind. Um, he talks about I fifty just pound gave, turkeys in that book. I almost just gave away a sweet turkey hunt spot. Uh, <laughs> so in there, he talks about going in to. We were hunting not far from within the within the Gila wilderness. There's a pueblo site, and we never made it over there. But we're hunting not far from a pueblo site in the Gila wilderness. And this guy talks about going in there. And so he's talking in the 1880s, looting a Pueblo site. And him saying how in the 1880s, he's saying how it's picked over and most of the good stuff is gone. Mm. But they walk away with a mummified body. But most of the good stuff's picked over. How old was the body? Doesn't say. Just says they had, and he talks about its history. It was sitting in some window. It was sitting in some window at a curio shop in some town in Arizona or New Mexico. I can't remember where. And now that no one's almost what happened to it. But it, he was talking about in the 1880s, ransack and Pueblo sites. And he talks about there's still corn in jars. And they didn't even know who the hell, right? At In that year, they, they'd lost track of like who the people were. People are... So like the fact that in that year it was sort of like a like the looting antiquities, you know. I mean, those people who built that's fathers and grandfathers were probably engaging with Euro Americans. The the to kind of like jump back to like how you come up with that figure of three hundred thousand dollars when you don't really know. Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be, like, we always talk about, like, why you don't move artifacts because you, you're destroying the story that is that the ground holds around the placement of that artifact. Yeah. And I imagine that has to be part of it, right? You're digging through all these soil layers, get rid of all the fossilized pollens and things like that that could also 
tell a lot more about whatever they're pulling out of the ground. Yeah. But it's hard to assign a dollar value to it. Right. I, and that's a huge question mark of mine for this thing. I wonder if it had to reach a certain threshold to make it a certain level crime. Mm. That's good thinking too. Brad, do you, have any, do you have any artifacts related to the Lewis and Clark expedition? I do not, but at the uh, Cultural Heritage Center in Pierre, they do have one of the peace medals. And it was oh. found and uh, somebody turned it in and offered it to the museum, so they have that there. Um, can you can you explain what, what that is? Uh, I'm, not ready, I'm not ready to get into this yet. Uh, <laughs> I got one I, last I, thing to say. I, I will talk about uh, Arikra sites along the Missouri River, though, because there are a lot of fishermen over the years and just other people who went out along along uh, Lake Oahe and the Missouri River. And when the river's down, a lot of those Arikara Vill village sites are, are exposed. And it's easy. I mean, you're just, it's not a matter of really going out and excavating full scale, but it's easy to walk along and find a lot of different artifacts and a lot of uh, burial remains too. So right. I, I remember being a, a child and my mother and father were invited out to a farmer's place for, uh, for dinner. And my younger brother and I went along and down in the den, there were six human skulls that this man had in his den. Now, of course, it's perfectly, completely illegal today, but those are the things that are readily available on the Missouri River. But uh, it, it is, uh, of course, illegal. Yeah. Well, illegal, and and there was a case in Washington where a skull had eroded out of the out of a bank. Kennewick man. Is that the Kennewick man story? Well, I don't know. It sounds like it. But you know, obviously, were they trying to go to a? They were trying to get illegal access to watch a riverboat race. God, is a, that a boat the race? One? Yeah. Or I was just going to say they were trying to sneak something. in to watch a race and found the Kennewick man. So a skull eroding out. Uh, but then, you know, the the cultural significance of these remains, you know, the, the tribes are like, well, somebody buried this person that is most probably related to us. It's more than just. Uh, a crime it's a sacrilegious act yeah well that's I talk about stories that make their own gravy yeah that story makes its own gravy they find the skull okay and they think they're looking at like a murder victim they don't know it's old someone comes out and realizes it's very old eroding out of the river winds up it's like a 9,000 it's a very old skull it's like a 9,000 year old skull there's this thing called, I can't remember what the hell it is. Like, uh, what's that discipline? It's a much discredited discipline. Oh, forensic or not? Forensic craniology. Craniology. What is it? Yeah. People think you can look at a skull and like make all these deductions about intelligence and all that. So anyways, a guy takes a gander at it. A se semi-qualified individual takes a gander at it and says, hey man, that's a Caucasian male skull that's 9,000 years old. So then it introduces this whole crisis about like someone trying to say that the, this thing, like that Native Americans weren't the original, like, right? That somehow there had been Europeans had made it here and predated whatever, it brought into like, it brought into, it opened up question like, who are the real Native Americans? How could mm -hmm. this Caucasian person be there? It was so offensive. What he was saying was so offensive to a tribe that was there. I can't remember what tribe it was occupied that land at the time of European contact that they said no one will ever look at this skull again and put it away. Later it was allowed to be looked at. They put it away and they didn't want anybody to view it because they didn't want this conversation to take hold. Um, an interesting wrinkle in this that people pointed out but it never got taken seriously is 9,000 years ago no one knows like whatever tribe is there now 
surely hadn't even taken form. Like people moved so much. Yep. And every square inch of the country was won and fought over by Native American tribes. It wasn't like this, like, it wasn't like this monolithic group. It was like people that moved around and waged war with one another and conquered lands. But when they, they went through and did the, the DNA analysis to what they could, right? That's, that's exactly what it showed. Like several different tribes were like, oh yeah, the, this person is a part of now a much broader community Mm -hmm. because the, the genetic, uh, traits that this person has are distributed through this this much wider group and uh the idea that it was a cock like the the idea that it was a european or caucasian thing was put to rest yeah yeah so the, if you trip over a skull when you're trying to sneak into a boat race yeah you may not be knowing what you're tripping over exactly but well, this uh, does have uh some good bearing on what, what we hopefully get into later with um the the question of whether or not to exhume Meriwether Lewis, right? Oh, I would dig him up right now. But I got I got one last thing to add. Then we're gonna get into that. <laughs> I got one last thing to add. I was telling you how I was gonna become a metal detecting enthusiast because my kids are really interested in metal detectors. We got a metal detector, and we're up at the the little property where we camp a lot. Um, and metal detecting around. The kids were hoping to find a I don't know why. A horseshoe, which they found buried quite a bit, quite a ways down, which is interesting. Now, my daughter, Rosemary, gets a hit on the metal detector and I start digging and I get down about a spade height down and turn the ground up and turn up a beautiful half, uh, kind of like a broken, but very worked piece of gorgeous black obsidian. Whoa. Whoa. 10 inches underground. Makes you wonder what's high. Oh, yeah. You know what it was that she hit with the, the metal detector struck off of was an old can lid. <laughs> But like just that was just be, covering yeah. A so chunk like of you, you're out there, it's like never ending, right? And you take a shovel and stick it down the ground, and turn it over, like oh, there's a part of a projectile point. And I, how many like <laughs> chunks of nail and oh. screw and stuff did you? I guys feel turn like the next, the we next... found a penny that's not that old, but I'm like that penny is 42 years old. They're like oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the next time we go up there, there's just going to be holes Everywhere. all over that valley. <laughs> I started freaking out after a while. I'm like, man, you guys got to fill these holes and. They had holes everywhere. And then someone literally tripped in the hole. Yep. No, you guys got to go back and fill damn holes in, man. They had, yeah, they had just place pocked with holes. It was funny is there's like an old piece of fencing that it, they must have found that same string of fencing. Like <laughs> I'm like, if you notice, everywhere you're digging is in a line. Yep. <laughs> like you keep digging the same hunk of fence out. Move right or left or whatever to get away from that fence. I had, I had lost two arrows the year before and they found both. Or, oh, sorry, nice. I had lost three and they found two so far. Which is great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally oh, nice. fine. Totally fine. All right. Ready, Brad? I'm ready. We're going to dig into Lewis Clark. Okay. Hit me, with a, hit me with a brief summation of what it was, but here's the trick. You have to include with it how Thomas Jefferson was saying, and if you run into a woolly mammoth, let me know. <laughs> like, what set up? Like, why? Why do we... What was Lewis and Clark supposed to be doing? Okay. You know, um, for Thomas Jefferson, first of all, I'll just preface this with uh, the comment that, you know, he'd been planning this for 20 years. You know, it wasn't a situation where a lot of times people think, okay, we had a Louisiana Purchase 1803 and then sent Lewis and Clark out 1804 to, to investigate this uh, new territory that the United States had just acquired. 
uh, Jefferson had been thinking about this. Uh, he talked to George Rogers Clark back in 1783, William Clark's older brother, about doing an expedition across the American West. George Rogers Clark uh, declined for personal reasons more than anything else. 1786, Jefferson is over in Paris. He meets a man from Connecticut by the name of John Ledyard. Ledyard says, I'll do this. I'll go from France and Western Europe. I'll go across Eastern Europe and go across Asia, come up on the Western side of North America, and then go back to the United States. Well, I'm, and, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm losing this. <laughs> yeah, so he's going all the way around by himself. Where was he going to cross the Pacific? He was going to cross the Bering Strait area and then land on the West side of North America and then come into the United States from the West. Come down through wow. Alaska, BC. And... Yep, yep. He made it as far as Russia and the uh, Tsarina at that time. Catherine said, no, no, you're not going to go through. So that was the end of that expedition. Right, man, did that not make it very far. Incredible. Oh, so no, he even well, like did part of it. He made it into Russia. Are you kidding me? Russia. Who's this guy? Uh, John Ledyard is his name. That guy had a guy from badass man. Was he by himself? <laughs> this podcast he was going is to do this by now. himself. You know, the, the story is that he was going to take his dog and him and then uh, venture across. Love him. Mark, he was going to cross the Bering Sea, <laughs> land in Alaska, and then and then work his way back work to the back eastern to the United US. States. Whoa. Right. Right. And what stopped him again? <laughs> uh, the Tsarina at that time, uh, Catherine, she refused to give him permission to You're cross Tsarina. Tsarina instead of a Tsar. Yeah, uh, yeah. We have the Empress uh, Catherine. Seriously. So, so she was the one who said, no, no, we're not going to grant you permission to come through Russia. So, uh, you know, it seems like in that time he could have said like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then just left and kept going. One day I'm coming down between, uh, I'm coming, I'm tra- traveling south into Missoula. What's that highway? 93? I pick up a hitchhiker, okay? Mm-hmm. And he gets in the car and he's like, man, I just got out of jail. And that made me nervous. And I said, what were you in jail for? He goes, hitchhiking. <laughs> they let him out of jail. He walked out on his hitchhike again. So you think that he would have been like, oh, okay, I understand. But then this went about his, because like. Russia's a big place. I know. It's like, what, like who would know? Right. So I, there's I just one dude around. wandering through. I do. It just also sounds exactly like um, they're being like, yeah, so this is what we want. And here's the path. And this guy was thinking about doing this other trip the entire other time. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do that. But this is the way I think it's going to work out the best. The trip that I already had planned. What was he going to do if he got to... I just don't think he should have asked permission. I mean, we can litigate this some other time. It just seems like the weirdest move on his part. And and part of the funding, of course, is coming from Jefferson and the American Philosophical Society to help uh, fund his his trip. But, uh, you know... You talked about big government and Lewis and Clark earlier, and yeah. I'll, I'll go along with that too uh, here in a little bit. But uh, in 1793, <laughs> but, but one minute, I got one more question. Sure. If Jefferson's thinking about this, then I mean, he's just outright defying whoever owned it, right? So like, that's why that's why the permission thing with the Russians seems a little funny to me because it's not like the um, Spanish, right? The Spanish in California was that was that who it was at that time. He'd had to get permission from the Spanish. He'd had to get permission from the British. And and actually, when Jefferson started planning all this, he started pursuing getting visas uh, permission. Oh, so he was going to do right. it like formally. He right. was going to like do it the right way. Right. But he knew that there would be resistance from not only people here in the United States wondering about the cost of this and then the, the whole purpose behind it, because it was not the United States territory. Why, why was this so necessary? Uh, the other thing is, uh, again... 
the uh, the question of who controls what territory. So that area, the Pacific Northwest, you had Russia, you had Britain, you had uh, Spanish, and then of course the United States comes along, and, and we're going to claim it for ourselves eventually too. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released. 
which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. If Jefferson was already planning that, was he also already thinking about how to get his hands on it? I mean, was that... Not at that point. I mean, this is, you know, 1786 was the second time where he uh, talked to John Ledyard. He just thought that this was something that was important for the sake of of discovery. You know, he he was such a inquisitive person. He was so knowledgeable about so many different things. He was interested in, in... botany and zoology. He was interested in American Indians. He, uh, you know, he, he just had such a wide range of interests and he thought this was something that was very significant. 1786, we're, we're still a very young country. In 1793, he contacted uh, through the American Philosophical Society with a, a French naturalist by the name of uh, Andre Michaud. And he made it as far as the Ohio River Valley. And they found out that he was actually going to be spying against Spanish posts. Mm. And so the United States said, no, we're not going to get involved with that. Everything you're saying so far, too, is decades before Jefferson even becomes president. Right. So what were his credentials at this point to, like, send people out on these adventures? Uh, his his interests. I mean, you have to keep in mind that here is a person who was a product of the Age of Enlightenment. He was just uh, interested in, in learning as much as he possibly could, uh, whether it was about religion or plant life or animal life or or native cultures or whatever it might have been, geography, geology. I mean, he was just such a well-rounded person from that product of the um, the Age of Enlightenment that, president or not, I mean, he just thought that this was very important to do. And so when he became the third president of the United States, he was actually in that position to do something about it. And that's when we, we started seeing the uh, everything falling into place, you might say. Was there ever a scenario where he's like, I'm just going to do it myself? Or did he not think he was like qualified or had the time? Or, or why, why wasn't he the one doing it? I know Jefferson never ever considered himself being in a position or a person who would undertake such a thing. He uh, that was always something that he would find he somebody else wine, to do. Tobacco. Uh, <laughs> he had he was a francophile. Right, right. He had books to read. Right, right. Yeah. He, he was he was a person that well read, but not not the adventuresome type that was going to go out and undertake an expedition like this. There's right. no way. You said John Ledyard's. Uh, he just took off with his dog, which real really interests me because I think people love the story of dogs and they don't get told very well. So I was going to tell Spencer we got to write this down uh-huh. for a future series. <laughs> and uh, one of the first hits on the on the Google machine here is the making of John Ledyard. Time to eat the dogs. Oh no! <laughs> oh, which you can kind of infer as to what happened on that trip, yeah. but. And, of course, Lewis ended up taking his dog with him. Uh, Newfoundland uh, Seaman was the dog's name. And made it all the way out to the Pacific Northwest and back. You know? And at the same time, uh, I think one historian figured out that they probably ate over 200 dogs during the expedition. Hmm. Yeah. I have all these pictures of eating dogs in Vietnam, and I'm always afraid to put them on social media. But maybe that would be my end, as I could mention that. In honor of Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Uh. Okay, what's next? Well, I think we're up to the point now where, like, Lewis gets tapped for this adventure, right? Right. He uh, he was uh, appointed by Jefferson to be his personal secretary with the intent that he was going to start learning uh, whatever he might need to know as far as uh, plant life, medicine, uh, zoology, uh, and, and prepare for this expedition. What did that role mean then? 
being in the personal sector. Yeah, yeah. Uh, being a right hand person, like a but, record, like a record keeper, uh, and not so much. And as far as being a secretary as we think, maybe in, in today's context, but uh, a person who was an assistant who would help Jefferson with other plans, uh-huh. uh, help him prepare for this expedition. And when the whole idea of the Louisiana Purchase came you know, about later that year, it, everything just fell into place very perfectly. You know, it, it was just, you couldn't ask for a better situation. So, but the interesting thing is that it was on January 18th, 1803, that Jefferson delivers his confidential message to Congress asking for an appropriation of $2,500. Confidential, <laughs> because he knew that there would be a lot of people here in the United States that would also say, $2,500 to explore some unknown territory at what a government waste, right? And of course, uh, that was an initial appropriation. That was the amount. That's pretty funny. Yeah. When you look at it overall, by the time they came back and how the men were paid per month and how they received land allotments, you know, you're looking at this expedition costing maybe closer to forty or $50,000 back at that time, you know, so it'd be quite bit more substantial today. So it, it certainly wasn't a situation really for $2,500, they funded this entire expedition. That was just simply an initial appropriation. They spent, a, the government spent a lot, a lot more, more money in the end. You absolutely. know, with the, with the Louisiana purchase, the thing that I've never been totally clear on is they ended up selling it to us as sort of a, um, like as a strategic move, right? Around it was around like that they were going to lose it anyway. Well, you know, the, the whole idea of the Louisiana territory, it, it became known as Louisiana territory all the way back to 1682 with uh, Robert de LaSalle, who claimed the area for King Louis the 14th of France. And then after the French and Indian war ended in 1763, the Western part, that area West of the, of the Mississippi river, that became Spanish controlled. And then it went from Spain back to France right around 1800 with the Treaty of San Alfonso. And that's that's when the United States really started becoming more concerned, more about having access to the river and getting through the uh, area of New Orleans. And so Jefferson sent Robert Livingston and James Monroe, uh, two very notable figures in American history, of course, and to negotiate with Napoleon's uh, representatives. And so they went over to Paris, negotiated. Napoleon had other issues. I mean, he was, he was thinking about Europe. Uh, his, his project in the Caribbean had fallen flat because of disease and he really didn't want that area of Louisiana anymore. And so, uh, the whole idea was that Jefferson told, uh, Monroe and Livingston offer, go up, go up as high as $10 million for New Orleans, just for New Orleans. And it was Napoleon's representatives who came back and said, what about Louisiana territory for what turned out to be about $15 million? Now, here, here are two individuals who can't just get on the phone and contact Jefferson and say, hey, what are we supposed to do? You know, uh, So uh-huh. they, uh, they went ahead and they signed the Louisiana Agreement on April 30th, 1803. And keep in mind that Jefferson had, had delivered that confidential message to Congress in January of 1803. You know, so he was already planning this. But the fact that the Louisiana Purchase was signed in April and then uh, you have Jefferson's really well-known instructions to Jefferson on June 20th, 1803, saying, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to study this and this and this and this, all these very specific directions. It wasn't until around the 4th of July, 1803, when news of Louisiana Purchase arrived in Washington, D.C. And even at that, Jefferson can't make that kind of agreement. He's, he's the president. Uh, treaties have to be ratified by the Senate. 
And it wasn't until October of 1803 that the Senate finally ratified the Louisiana Treaty. Well, now it all makes a lot more sense. You know, we have, you know, we've you know, it doubled the size of the United States, and so it makes more sense to go out and explore it, certainly. But uh, it's just the idea that so many people think that we bought it, and then we decided oh, I, to explore it. I totally it, thought you know? that. Yeah, yeah. He's like, so, well, I bought it. Now but, I need but, to put together but it some... Works, you know, by October, by the time the treaty was ratified, uh, Lewis and Clark were already making all kinds of... Uh, of uh, plans and and uh, they were you know like I said they met at the Ohio Falls and and uh, went down to the uh, the Wood River area and they're going to spend the winter of 1803 to 1804 uh, recruiting soldiers uh, to go along with them you know when when uh, Lewis was first thinking about this uh, Jefferson thought well you know if you take a take ten or twelve men with you you know it, from the time they left uh, the Missouri up until the uh, the uh, Hadats and the Mandan and the Arikara villages in North Dakota, it, it was closer to four dozen because you had the uh, the two captains, actually Captain Meriwether Lewis, Lieutenant William Clark, although they both went by captains. You had three sergeants initially. Uh, the one sergeant, Charles Floyd, was the only member of the expedition to, to die along the way. He was replaced by a vote of the men, uh, and he was replaced by Patrick Gass. You had about two dozen privates. and then Was, you it, had a, wasn't prior, was prior an uh, officer? He was one of the sergeants, okay. Nathaniel Pryor. Right? Yeah. Yeah, you had initially John Wardway, who was really the third in command, or you want to look at Lewis and Clark as being the, uh, the, the co-commander, certainly. John Wardway, Sergeant John Wardway would have been the next in command. And then you have uh, um, Charles Floyd, the one who, who died of a appendicitis attack, is what they believe, down by Sioux City. And then you had uh, Nathaniel Pryor, and then Patrick Ass was the one who replaced Charles Floyd later by vote of the, of the men. And when they were doing this recruiting, they were strategically trying to get unmarried men with no families, right? That was that was a big part of it. I mean, these were people from you know. Look at a uh, George Shannon, for example. He was in his late teens. You know, he he was very young. Uh, he, he has the uh, notorious reputation of being the guy who got lost more often than anybody else. Uh, but you have George Shannon, then you have. Uh, Lewis and Clark, who are in their late 20s, early 30s, uh, you have Lewis celebrating his 31st birthday in August of 1805. God, it's like, you know, so it's like they're, Seth they're, and Chester. They're, <laughs> they're young. They're young. How old are you, Spencer? 30. Oh, it's like him. Now, what, what did a $15 million transaction look like then? Were we like shipping them a literal boatload of money or was there some assets? Or how does that happen? No, it, it's, it's uh, just basically through the funding over a period of time. So it wasn't one big lump sum or anything like that. The other thing that I think is really important to, to point out, for $15 million, what did the United States actually acquire? Political authority. We did not buy any land. You know, a lot of times people think, well, $15 million, we, we doubled the size, physically doubled the size of the United States. If that had been the case, then there would never have been a need for any other treaties with Indian nations to acquire land, like the, the Laramie Treaty of 1868 or anything like that. But we spent way more than $15 million when you look at the 19th century and all the different treaties for land that the United States entered into with different Indian nations. It's so, so funny. We were told, you know, every year by a new teacher in Montana growing up that we acquired uh, the Louisiana Purchase for a penny an acre. Anytime you can get land for a penny an acre, it doesn't matter if it's the most godforsaken swamp, pick it up. So, That's no, a direct quote. Yeah, yeah when, you, yeah. when you look at it overall, it, it was the political authority because it had gone from the French to the Spanish, 
back to the French, and now the United States had the political authority. And that was one of the things that Lewis and Clark were supposed to do. When they engaged with these different Indian nations, they were supposed to say, you are now under American authority. Don't, don't trade with the British. Don't trade with the Spanish. Don't trade with anybody else. You trade only with American traders from now on. You are now under United States authority. And they're like, you guys all look the same to us. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine if someone sold you uh, political th- authority over the northwest region of, of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Okay. So someone sells you the political authority over it. There's still a bit of work to be done there. Right. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, like, right. there's a lot of people who are going to be like, what? Oh, oh, what now? You know? This is going like way beyond the expedition now, but did we ever consider selling it back or selling it to no. someone else? No. It was no. ours and we were keeping no. it. Right. Absolutely. And in fact, now the incentive was to, to keep going, you know, to uh, claim that territory of the Pacific Northwest and, and eventually look at the, at the, the, uh, the American Southwest and, and acquiring that too, which, which we did uh, by the 1840s, you know, the late 1840s. It was just a, one big step as far as American expansion westward, certainly. So when Lewis was tapped to do this, he had to like be a botanist and an archaeologist and a hunter and a politician and a fisherman and an artist and a doctor. Did he have those skills before he was chosen for this job, or did he like gain those qualifications after it was decided? He gained those uh, because a lot of people were very critical of why Lewis. You know, Lewis is not a trained naturalist. He doesn't know anything about plants or animals. You know why? Why, why choose him to lead this expedition? But when he was chosen and the expedition started to be planned, uh, one of the things that Jefferson did is arrange for him to go to Philadelphia and to be basically tutored with a, a number of individuals to learn about, well, uh, for example, Benjamin Smith Barton. He was the one who who tutored uh, Jefferson on how to preserve different specimens, whether it's plant specimens or animal specimens, anything like that. So he was uh, very important about it. Uh, you have Casper Wistar, who was very interested in paleontology, you know, so to bring out questions like, okay, now if you find animals that we think are extinct back here, you know, we want you to be especially on the lookout for those, you know, are there still mammoths or mastodons out there or anything like that? Not that he knew or or fully expected that there was, but that was one of the things that, you know, if you're out there, this is what we also want you to to look for. Any signs of of, of animals that might be extinct by now. Uh, You have Dr. Benjamin Rush, who, uh, again, a very well-known person from the American Revolutionary period. And uh, he was considered to be the preeminent physician at the time. Uh, and one of the things that, of course, you think of with, with Rush and the Lewis and Clark expedition is that Lewis arranged to take 50 dozen of Rush's pills with them. Now, these Rush's pills, these were, these were kind of uh, Lewis's cure-all. You know, he, he, he did learn some medical things from, from Rush, certainly. But uh, the whole idea is that, oh, you're not feeling well. Um, uh, you have loose bowel movements. Here, take Rush's pills. What were the pills? They were loaded with a lot of mercury. They were super powerful laxatives. Uh, they, they called them Rush's thunderbolts. <laughs> and in many cases, if you're dealing with something like dysentery, Absolutely, the worst, the, the worst thing that you should possibly be taking is uh, Russia's thunderbolts. You know, the the, the thunderbolts, thunderclappers. They were just these really powerful laxatives, but that's what Lewis did. No, oh, you're not feeling well here. Take take these. Take some of these. You know, and they, they think it would clear out that and bloodletting were two of his main medical practices. Th- was that with leeches or just with uh, cutting you? 
um, the cutting. They had the actual basins that you'd rest your arm on and they would cut your wrist and let it bleed out and try to get some of that bad blood out of your system. And, sure. and uh, again, two medical practices that were probably the most common. And yet they were, uh, they were probably medical practice that you're probably surprised. Wow. We didn't kill some of our own men. <laughs> I had often read that, uh, the, the, you'll see where they say the only physical evidence left of the expedition is where Clark carved his name into Pompey's pillar. Okay. East of Billings, Montana. Right. Then someone said, no, because at the, at the campsite at the, where L- Lolo Creek flows into the Bitterroot. Traveler's West Rest. Traveler's Rest. They found traces of that Mercury. Mercury. Is that true? That's that's one of the things that archaeologists look for. You know, depending where you are on the Lewis and Clark Trail. I mean, through South Dakota, we know that they went to Spirit Mound down the very southeastern part of the state. But other than that, you know, we have uh, four dams along the Missouri River in South Dakota now that have created these huge lakes. And so things like Arikara villages are now inundated by, by Lake Oahe, for example. But when archaeologists look to find a possible campsite. And keep in mind, this is a military expedition. And so even when they set up camp, it had to be set up a certain way, which meant that even the latrine area was a certain distance from the main camp. And because they took so many of these Russia's pills and, and even the salve that they used for treating uh, the men who had syphilis had so much mercury in it that when archaeologists start looking into the ground, if they can find a heavy concentration of mercury, they can say, oh, this might be one of the latrine areas of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah. So that, that uh, use of mercury back then was, was very common, and they used it a lot. Okay. Uh, all right, back to when they picked their guys. Yeah. They went up with some, some, some rascals. They did. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, you know, they, uh, they had some really good qualified individuals, certainly. But there were, there were, because it was a military expedition, they had at least, at least seven different court marshals along the way. And, you know, some of it varied from sleeping on duty, which was a serious offense. Uh, some of it was uh, uh, just a few days after the expedition began, two of the men went back and, and got drunk. And so they had to pay the price. Uh, you have uh, Moses Reed, who was a deserter, who was finally caught, and he was punished accordingly. He had to run the gauntlet four times with a cat of nine tails. Every man had one of those, and he had to run that gauntlet four times. That means getting lashed? Getting lashed, yep. He ran right through them, and they every person had to uh, strike him, and they did that four times to him. And the thing and What was, were they striking him with? Whips? The, yeah, cat of nine tails. So the whips with the nine different strings on the end. And so it's not being struck just by one whip. It's really being struck by nine at the same time. And he had to do that. What every, was that uh, item used for other than this gauntlet? It was a military expedition. That was, that was, it's. And they packed it along for whooping people. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. It's such a bizarre thing. A trip like that. Why would you want somebody there who doesn't want to be there? It's like, all right, see ya. And, uh, you know, the last one was John Newman, who was accused of mutinous expressions when they meet, uh, when they reached the Arikara villages in, in October, they spent October 8th through the 12th with the Arikara North Central part of South Dakota. And John Newman was, at any time they had these court-martials, it was a, a trial of your peers. Lewis and Clark were not involved. This, the sergeants, one of the sergeants presided. You had the men, some of the men who served as a jury, and they determined if a person was guilty or not. And John Newman was found guilty, and he was uh, 
given 75 lashes on the bare back. And the thing With of it the is- cat and nine tails. Cat, well, cat and nine tails, exactly. And there was a, a Rick Ross- I'd like to get one of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, just, just to have one. Just, one just for Ricks. your crew or- No, it's whatever. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there was one in, in a shop down here on Main Street. Yeah, with all were, the were, you at, were you at Adam and Eve's? No, not that <laughs> yeah. shop. Bro. Little thrift store, little thrift store down there on Main Street yesterday. A cat of nine tails. I'm pretty sure that's what that was down really? there in the bottom of a case. I didn't yeah. inspect it thoroughly. You can hang it on the bottom. Of, I don't I don't think that's where Tommy was shopping. Afterwards. You can hang it on the wall above Same the punk place gun. About the books. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh -huh. They had these uh, these the leather swimsuits with the little studs and stuff yeah, on them, and right next the matching collar, right next to that. They had them. Well, that even even at that when they were punished, uh, you know the the one Rickroll leader, uh, Eagle Feather, he he started wailing because he couldn't imagine why are you punishing one of your own people like this? Really, it's one thing when you punish the enemy because they're the enemy, but to punish one of your own people like that, he, he just could not understand why they would even do, do such a thing. No kid. And the thing of it is that when whenever these men received you know twenty five lashes, uh, fifty lashes, one hundred lashes, the Newman received seventy five lashes, it's not like okay, well you have a couple days to recover. No. You're back to work. You know, you're not going to get a few days off from manual labor because you did something wrong. What was his mutinous expression? Uh, it doesn't really say. You know, in the journals, it says that he was mutinous expressions. Uh, and so he said something like, you know, what we ought to do is just head back yeah. home. You know, something that he was uh, yeah. told to do something. He, he disobeyed. And, this is stupid. And he, he was very, <laughs> uh, well, actually, yeah. for Newman, he was very I'm apologetic. Bored. He Because he, he, he was dismissed <laughs> from the expedition. He was sent back in April of, of 1805, and he, he really did work extra hard to try to make amends and everything, but they said, no, no, it's too late. You know? Really? So whatever he said, whatever he did that qualified as mutinous expressions, it was enough for them to say, and then maybe it was just the fact that they were setting an example that no, when you're told to do something, you have, you have to do something. I mean, it was a military expedition. I don't want to flog this to continue flogging about the flogging, but like, do they, are there reports of like how bad the, uh, the wounds were? From getting something like seventy-five, they would have to be pretty severe. Yeah, I mean, and like and open, like open wounds, and, and something that we might even stitch up yeah. today. And then, of course, having somebody like Lewis pro provide salve to try to speed the healing and everything. But, Maybe a little mercury. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of the salves had mercury. Like I said, for uh, when they treated the men with syphilis, uh, a lot of that salve had had a lot of uh, mercury in it as well. So, but yeah, they. Uh, it was a military expedition first and foremost. How many of the guys that went? were in the military prior to getting enlisted. Like Coulter wasn't a military guy. No. Um, most of them were. Like I said, there were at least two dozen privates that were already in the military. So they were recruiting and, and from within right. the military. But then you have other people like George Durier, who was uh, noted for being the best hunter of the group. And he uh, he was he was brought along for not only for his hunting proficiency, but also the fact that he uh, he could do sign language. And so knowing that they would meet dozens of different groups of people, having that ability to have sign language was considered to be very important. Drewyer was, was French-Canadian on his father's side and uh, Shawnee on his mother's side. There was a universal sign language? It was very common, yeah. Actually, a lot of the mountain men uh, had this universal sign language. But at the same time, you have to think how well did this really convey what they were saying. I mean, you start talking about... Uh, the White Father in in Washington D.C. I mean that's that's all foreign. And how do you how do you actually put that into a sign language? So the whole idea of using gestures was used, but 
there was there was a lot of confusion with it. And they were fortunate they did have interpreters along the way, people whom they met along the way who served as interpreters. And so in, in some cases that proved to be very important. In other cases, uh, when you talk about uh, Toussaint Charbonneau and Sacagawea, and I'll say Sacagawea because there will be other people who will say Sacagawea. Yep. Uh, but in the case of Toussaint Charbonneau and Sacagawea, you have it going from English to French to Hidatsa, eventually to Shoshone. And then if you're going to have a reply, now it has to go from Shoshone to Hidatsa to French to English. And you have to wonder how much is lost in that communication when you're trying to translate it that many times. Yeah, so, or new things added in. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Can, can we narrow in on Sakajuia? Sure. And her husband for a minute? Sure. Uh, my kids brought home from the library, they brought home a book um, that was kind of like highlighting different Western figures. I can't remember what the hell the book was. I just remember this chapter. And it talked about not only how little is known about her, but it talked about how she became like the individuals throughout American history who elevated her to the position that she is. And it laid out in very simple, short form, like, here is what is actually known about this person. I was shocked how little is known about her. Absolutely. They don't know if she lived to be old age. It's like she was a teen, right? She was a teen bride. Right. Well, like, yeah, probably... lay out like what is, like, I couldn't believe how little is known okay. about her. Yeah. And then what people have extrapolated from that. Exactly. Yeah, there, there's a lot of controversy. When I when I was growing up, it was Sacagawea with a J. And now most historians will say Sacagawea. Now, I'm going to stick with Sacagawea. Out of this area. I mean, a whole damn lifetime of that, out, right? Out in this area, it's going to be Sacagawea. I mean, okay. she, uh, she was uh, born in the area of Salmon, Idaho, and... And, uh, you know, so I just, uh, I, I, twice I've been to the Wind River Indian Reservation where they have the Sacagawea Cemetery and they talk about how she was uh, very significant to the Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, she was a guide, she was an interpreter, her presence was important, all those different things. Most historians, again, will say that it was probably Sacagawea, which means something completely different. Sacagawea is a Shoshone word, which she was Shoshone. She was probably 11 or 12 years old when she was taken by uh, by the Hadatsas. But Like she was kidnapped in an act of war, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. She was and kidnapped. And then sold to a... Uh, the story is that Toussaint won her in gaming. You know, so like one, or in, a car, one or in a card game or whatever. That, and, well, yeah, they had different... Uh, Different games of, of gambling, of, of risk, you know, like uh, which hand is it in and, you know, things like that. Whoa. And, and uh, that, that's very simple. It's not like he fell in love with her. He won her through gambling. Well, so let's back up a minute. So sure. We now know that she was born in Salmon, around Salmon. Right. A raiding party of Hadatsa. Right. Kidnapped her. Whatever, kidnapped her. And she ended up uh, eventually with the uh, Mandan and the Hidatsa villages when Lewis and Clark came across her, uh, actually through uh, through Toussaint Charbonneau again. She was probably and 11 or 12. And he had won her gambling. Right. And he had, he had two wives with her at, at, one, at that time. And that was the thing. You know, which one is buried in, in uh, on the Wind River Indian Reservation and which one died in North Central South Dakota at, at Fort Manuelisa? Uh, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. Okay. So it was, and she's pregnant when they encounter her, right? Uh, she was pregnant. She was probably seventeen or eighteen years old at that time, and uh, she, on she was having a very difficult time with the delivery of the child. And uh, one of the 
interpreters or one of the Frenchmen who were at the, uh, the camp at the time, René Jusson, he said, well, he's seen it happen where you take the rattle of a snake and you grind it up into powder and you dilute it with water and have the, the woman drink that. They did that and shortly thereafter she gave birth. <laughs> That. So whether it whether it worked or not, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, but uh, that was February 11th, 1805, that Jean-Baptiste uh, Charbonneau was born then. But, and, but they wanted, Lewis and Clark wanted Charbonneau to accompany them because he was fluent in a couple languages, correct? He was fluent in a couple languages, but the fact that his his wife, Sakagawea, was, was Shoshone, they knew that that was probably going to be the next nation whom they would meet. And they knew that the farther west they would go, the more likely they were to come into contact with Indians who had horses. And so they realized that, yeah, it's nice to have Charbonneau along, but it's really nice to have his wife come along too, to have Sakakawiga along. And they, and they knew this, they knew about the Shoshone because of just the knowledge of trade networks. Especially with those uh, uh, village cultures, the uh, Arikara, the Hidatsa, and the Mandan. Those were, those were centers, trade centers, and there would be groups from a wide area that would eventually come in and they would trade in those areas. And uh, then they'd go back to their their locations. And so, yeah, they knew about the Shoshone. They knew about the Cheyenne. They knew about uh, yeah, all the other different groups that they, they traded extensively. And so they knew that, yeah, here's, here's uh, their bit of advice. You know, the farther north or farther west you go, you are come in contact with tribes that will have horses and uh, the Shoshone will be one of those. And that, that proved to be one of the most fascinating stories, I guess, is when the Lewis and Clark expedition met with the Shoshone after, well, they left April 7th, they went April, May, June, July. It wasn't until August before they finally saw another human being. And that was the, uh, the Shoshone nation. Seriously? And that's when, uh, that's not when, another human being, right? Nobody. <laughs> there was one story where they said that Lewis and three of the men were going in advance and they saw a, a person on, on horseback. And so Lewis was pretty excited and he had asked, uh, Sakagawea before, how do you say white man in Shoshone? And of course, through the translations, it came out Tababone. And so as Lewis is approaching this person on horseback, he rolls up his shirt sleeve and he yells out Tababone, Tababone, trying to indicate that he's a white person. Well, the person takes off and run, uh, takes off and on his horse on, in a different direction. And I've come to find out that, you know what, if you've never seen a white man, there probably isn't a word for white man. <laughs> Tababone uh, was a Shoshone word meaning stranger. So here he is approaching this person yelling, I'm a stranger, I'm a stranger, and the person <laughs> takes off, which which makes sense. Later, uh, others joined, uh, came in and confronted uh, what, Lewis. But hold on, Go what ahead. area were they passing through where they went that many months without encountering anyone? Uh, all on the Missouri at this point. I mean, they they left, uh, like I said, April 7th. After from leaving the Mandan, the Mandan villages. villages. Right. And they're they went months. Going up the Missouri River. and, and uh, That's like my dream hunting or fishing trip. <laughs> <laughs> like you, when you, but, you leave and you're like, God, there's yeah. still nobody Cause, here. Because right? smallpox was ripping out ahead of them. Back in, in the 1790s, there was a huge smallpox epidemic. And that had really decimated the Arikara people quite a bit. I mean, at one point, there were probably 32 Arikara villages. When Lewis and Clark meet them, there's three. Okay. You know, so a lot of those populations that had uh, died because of smallpox. The next big smallpox epidemic would be in the 1830s. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, 
I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX Off-Road Map and Navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better. Because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. I, I just want to finish up on Sacagawea real quick. Sure. Uh, in your mind, I, no one really knows the answer to this, but it, she's kidnapped as a child. Okay. Which was common practice. Yeah. yeah. 
and then gets some semblance of freedom when she gets won by Charbonneau. What would have prevented someone from saying, I am going to go back home? Is it just it's so far? I, I think part of it being so young when or she was Or was she in some way a captive of this guy? And I think part of it too is that this is the, the social expectations that she is now property of this particular person. I hate to use the, the, the term married because she was really more, more of the property than anything else. You know, so when they, uh, when they take off and they eventually get to the Shoshone, Lewis and his men are there first. A day or two later, Clark shows up and Sakakawea is with them and they're, they're excited because, you know, she's going to be able to speak language. And as they sit down to negotiate and they're going to, you know, go through their whole spiel as far as you're now under American authority and everything, but they're also interested in acquiring horses to get over the mountains. And all of a sudden Sakakawea leaps up and she gives out this, this exclamation and she goes over and she realizes that the Shoshone leader is her brother whom she has not seen since she is kidnapped at the age of 11 or 12. So at the, her brother Kamehameha was the leader of the Shoshone. And uh, again, you could write a novel better for that. The fact that mm -hmm. now they know, okay, we're going to get our horses. We're, we're going to be okay. We'll, we'll get people to guide us over the mountains and everything else because of this connection between Sakagawea and, yep. and Kamehameha. The, this thing I read about what's actually known about her, it got into that and it got into this other very telling this very telling thing about her that sort of like helped form the mythology around her is that when they get close to the Pacific, mm. there's some reason why they're going to go look at it, but she's not invited to go look at it. But he even points out in his journal, she wanted so badly to see the ocean. And he's like, she came all this way. How could we deny her? Exactly. And so that is where stem this like explorer curiosity, right? That he like, because they're so sparse with what they talk about with personnel. The right. fact that he like took note of it suggests that there was this, right, this intense curiosity right. in her. Right. Yeah, you're right. There's actually, when you read through the journals, there's very few references to her. Or they might just refer to Charbonneau as a woman. They might refer to the snake woman, the Shoshone woman. Um, at one point, they did call the river Bird Woman's River, which in the Hidatsa language, that would be Sakagawea. And oh, okay. that's the only time in the journals that I know of where they actually tried to spell it phonetically with the hard G sound, Sakagawea. Mm -hmm. You know, and then of course in North Dakota, they use the K, Sakagawea. You know, so, uh, but with uh, what you're talking about, you know, as far as a guide, which is what they started getting into her homeland area, she, they start, she started to recognize certain places like Beaverhead Rock, for example. Um, and it's one of those that when you come around the curve, you think, oh, that must be Beaver Road Rock because it looks just like a beaver's head. You know, so she knew some of those places where she grew up. Had she ever been to the Pacific? No, she'd never been to the Pacific before. And so when she gets out to the Pacific, there's, there's a couple of very notable things. One that you're talking about is that there is a whale that's washed up on the, uh, on the shore. She wants to go see this. You know, she, she's heard them talking about this. And, and so she wants to go and actually look at this huge fish, this, uh, the whale, uh, that had, had washed up on the shoreline. And she was pretty demanding that this is what she wanted to do. And so they, they allowed her to go and see it. Um, the other thing that was very interesting, and this is where she really develops her legacy is that there's not a whole lot about her in the journals per se, but it's in the late 19th century when she really becomes kind of the, uh, the heroine of the women's suffrage movement. Mm -hmm. Because in November of 1805, when they get out to the Pacific Northwest, they're trying to decide, okay, where are we going to put our winter quarters? 
And Lewis and Clark, even though it was a military expedition, they could have just simply said, okay, this is the way it's going to be. They went around and some people call it a vote. Some people say, no, they just took a poll, the semantics, but they went around, they asked all the uh, members of the expedition, except for the child, of course, where they thought the winter quarters should be, which meant that they asked Sacagawea, a young teenage American Indian woman, what she thought. Not even it, married. But it's point. <laughs> Yeah. But it's um, it's pointed out that they did ask her, or it's surmised they, that they asked no, her. No, they that that they conducted a poll that or vote, however you want to say it, and uh, asked all the members. And the two most notable was Sacagawea, because American Indians, of course, weren't collectively considered American citizens until until uh, 1924. So this is long before that. This is uh, 1805. And the other one is that, of course. Uh, women not having the right to vote until the 19th amendment in, in 1920, you know, so this is years and years beyond, uh, the, the opportunity for women to, to actually vote. But I, I, I got to re-ask my question. Sure. Do they say that they specifically included her in the voting? Yes. Or, oh, they, okay. Right. That's what I was curious right. about. Cause right. they might've just said we asked everybody, but then in no. fact, didn't even ask her cause she no. was a woman. Because no. it's also noted that York gets input as well, which ends up being like the first time, uh, a black person got exactly. to vote in America. Exactly. 1805. And again, you look at it, slavery wasn't abolished until the 13th Amendment in 1865. So this is 60 years before slavery is abolished. And then you look at the 15th Amendment that granted African-American men the right to vote. Well, that wasn't until 1870. So mm. this is 65 years before uh, black men could vote. We better hit on this real quick now that we're okay. putting Sacagawea behind us in the story for a minute. They had a slave. Was his workload different than everybody else's workload? No. Um, he, he was actually a childhood friend of Clark's. They, uh, they grew up together. When Clark was asked to go along with this expedition, it just only seemed natural that his servant, York, would, would come with him. But he's not on payroll. He's not on payroll, but in a, in a way, he becomes one of the guys. I mean, he's allowed to go hunting. Slaves aren't allowed to carry weapons, you know, but he's allowed to go hunting. He becomes one of the guys. He, uh, he, uh, becomes a very notable member of the, uh, of the expedition. And at the same time, when they return, he goes back to being uh, part of slave life. You know, Clark even at one point said that he had to, uh, punish York, uh, to keep him, uh, keep him the same reference that he was nothing but a slave. But um, was there, I thought he, uh, he didn't free him. I no. thought he freed him no. after the expedition. no. Uh, there, there are several different stories. Uh, one is that he, uh, York married and that he actually moved out west, settled down with uh, American Indian tribe. Uh, others that he uh, he stayed with uh, with Clark for a period of time and then eventually left. But there really is not a whole lot known about what happens to York afterwards. I mean, we know that he returns with with Clark uh, in 1806 and he reverts to the uh, the slave life again. But he didn't free him. No. No, that, that, that was, that was one thing. That? In fact, a lot of people really because want, want him. Because you want to. <laughs> yeah, you really want him to be freed. I feel like a lot of the like middle school history books, the story of York ends after the expedition. They don't realize that like York asked for his freedom even. And like, mm. I think, didn't he have a wife in Tennessee maybe right. that he asked to go live with? And, and right. he was still told no. Right. And I think one uh, one version of it is that he became a... Um, a wagon master, you know, he would haul freight with wagons. So there's several different stories as far as what happened to York, but there's really nothing definitive. Now you asked about his workload. One place I think his workload was different was having sex with, uh, tribes, women. And you feel like that was part of the workload. Well, they, I've heard these references. They were impressed by him. They had never seen a, a 
person with black skin before. Right. Um, and they would do this practice of like spiritual power passing and, and York was unique in that sense. Right. Right. You know, it was, it was, uh, and, and not just York. I mean, even, even the, the members, other members of the expedition, because they were white, you know, that was something that was part of this, this mystique. Uh, it sounds pretty risque, uh, sounds, you know, like it was just, uh, inappropriate behavior, but it was a, it was a culturally accepted situation where when Lewis and Clark met with the, uh, the Titawan Lakota, uh, they were, were offered women, but apparently nobody, according to the journals, nobody accepted those offers. When they get to the Arikara, that's, <laughs> that's when they, 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 does he specifically say no one accepted? Uh, yes. Uh, Clark had a quote. He said something to, that he, he, uh, can't remember, he, he waved or he wavered. I think he said he wavered. Now, people <laughs> wondered now, I mean, like, you wavered, you hesitated, then you accepted, <laughs> or do you wave it and just say, no, no, thank you. And so uh, there's nothing in the journals that that indicate at any time that Lewis or Clark engage in these these kind of relationships. But when they get to the Rickera, uh, they're they're fascinated with York. Uh, in, in the Rickera language, he was referred to as as big medicine. Now, hmm. big medicine in the sense that what you're talking about, Spencer, is that there was a belief among some of these different tribes that certain medicine, certain spiritual powers could be transferred from one person to the next. Uh, for example, when they were with the uh, the, uh, the winter that they were with the Mandan Indians, the Mandan had what was called a medicine dance or a buffalo calling dance. And the way it works, uh, and they're very explicit. They, they, they go into a lot of detail as far as what men were engaging in these relations, who was suffering from, from a venereal disease, who was being treated for what. Nothing again about Lewis or, or Clark uh, specifically. But in the case of uh, the journals on January 5th, 1805, uh, we sent one of our men to the medicine dance last night. They offered him four women. The way it was supposed to work is that you would have a group of elders, men, who would be in the lodge and then younger men with their wives would come in and the younger men would offer their wives to the elders. And they describe it as the elders would go off and do their business and then the woman would return and then she would have relations with her husband. It was more of a generational type of transfer of, of power, if you will, or spiritual power, medicine. But now that you have whites, it, it's also the same thing, to transfer power from a white man to one of the uh, one of the members of the tribe, or in the case of York, a special fascination: the, the fact that he was was dark skinned, and uh, you know the, the, uh, there's a very well known painting by Charles Russell where they're in a lodge and and uh, you see these people coming up and, and touching his skin and and the texture of his hair, and because they're just completely mystified, they they'd never seen a, a person of this kind of stature and and, and uh, like I said, the, the color of his skin and and the, everything about him was something that they considered to be very spiritual, very much big medicine. And so, yeah, he was offered a lot of women. Yeah, and the Arikara specifically, there was a warrior that was so set on York having sex with his wife or, or whatever that the warrior offered to stand guard outside the lodge while York was inside just to give him privacy. Right, huh, right, yeah. And it was, it was, it was commonplace. Now, I think a big part of that is too about um, the knowing, you know, the fact that this arrangement has been made uh, there were other situations in which uh, some of the, the mountain men, especially when you think of the Ashley party in 1823, where they, uh, two of the men sneaked into the Arikara villages to have these relationships and they were caught. And that's what rigor, really triggers the, the whole situation between the Arikara attacking the Ashley party. 
you know, because that was something that was not arranged, you know, but in this case, the arranged uh, situations between the members of the Lewis and Clark expedition and the, the various tribes, that was, that was just that it was arranged. You know, uh, there's a fun anecdote about the vulnerabilities of, of, or sort of the, the hazards of journal reading in, in Evan S. Connell's book, Son of the Morning Star where he describes there's this doctor who is among the party that finds Custer's command after it's slaughtered. And he describes in great detail everything he saw, everything he did, right? Everything everybody did. But the doctor makes a debut in someone else's journal where someone else describes how the doctor tried to pull, had found a body of an Indian, had tried to pull, it was very hot, the, car, the carcasses were starting to rot had tried to pull the shoes off a Indian and his skin slipped and the doctor vomited and has pointed out that that's the one thing that doctor seemed to omit from his own journal <laughs> that day. Right. And right. so like, there's like a little bit of, right. Right. And no yeah, one's business. Exactly. Especially when you're, <laughs> when you're with commanders, I mean, it's easy to talk about, you know, this person and this person and how they engage with the relations and how they're suffering from venereal disease. But when you're the commanders, do you put that in there? Nobody did. And, they, and there were at least eight individuals who kept journals, but um, nobody in any of the journals recorded anything about Lewis or Clark specifically engaging in these relations. But there were individuals later on in the 19th century who, uh, who claimed that uh, they were fathered by either Meriwether Lewis or by William Clark. Yeah, lay that out. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Okay. Got, there's got to be descendants from these relations. From well, multiple tribes, too. Yeah. And, and they talked about individuals who would have uh, certain African-American characteristics, you know, the, the, the broad nose, uh, the texture of the hair, things like that. And they think, well, that's, that's York. Um, in the, uh, the case of uh, the Nez Perce, there was one by the name of Daytime Smoker who had a uh, reddish tint to his hair. And according to their family's tradition, William Clark was a father. Well, then again, there might have been other red-haired red -haired individuals on the expedition, but we do know that Clark had red hair, but uh, that was always their tradition. In, in South Dakota, there is a, a, a family who for over 200 years, I mean, going back to uh, when the Lewis and Clark expedition met the Titawan Lakota in the Pier Fort Pier area, their claim is that Lewis fathered a child there. Now, Lewis probably had no idea that that might have been the case. If he did, Lewis never married. He never had any children that we know of. But this family's oral tradition is that he fathered a child and that when that uh, person became in his late 60s, he was actually baptized. And his he took the name Joseph DeSmith Lewis. His uh, gravesite is on St. Albans Cemetery in the Lower Rural Reservation in South Dakota. And when you go there, you see the, the huge grave marker. And then it says, uh, son of Meriwether Lewis of the famed Lewis and Clark expedition. His baptismal records are at the Center for Western Studies at Augustana University in Sioux Falls. But that's the question. So what? Uh, he, it says on his certificate that the father was Meriwether Lewis. How are you going to prove that? And this has been part of the family's oral history for, for well, ever since. You know, uh, back, He would have been born in 1805. But the thing of it is, this family has tried and spent a fair amount of money trying to make the DNA connections. Now, because Lewis did not have any known children, but there are other Lewis members of the family that are out there. And so they have uh, tried extensively to try to say, 
let's let's find out. You know, if if our oral history is right, well then we should we should be noted for that. That Meriwether Lewis was the father of such and such person way back, our great 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 grandfather and so on. If if not, well then then we know. You know, so the family just really wants to know, and uh, it's trying to make that connection to do the uh, the DNA studies. Uh, they, they've spent a fair amount of money investing into this, uh, going through uh, different DNA groups, and, and uh, they, they really just want to know. And this is, is kind of why I brought up the uh, Kennewick man uh, and the controversies around that, right, and, and that word a sacrilege, right? So Meriwether Lewis is, is, is buried, and we can't exhume him just for the sake of science we need a living relative to say you know what it's okay with us if you exhume him and and they've actually taken this to court and uh it's just the the policy of the national park service that when those uh, rec- or, uh requests were made denied you know and said no we the national park service does not allow anybody to be exhumed and to be studied. Of course, uh, with the Lewis situation, was it murder? Was it suicide? Uh, people who knew him best at that time, they thought suicide. They could see that. You know, he had these bouts of what Stephen Ambrose referred to as melancholy and depression. Uh, he had other health problems. Uh, he was dealing with some very serious uh, political issues at the time. That's why he was heading back to Washington, D.C. But well, then super large doses of mercury can mess with the person's absolutely brain and or uh, one of my nervous system right right so right. so what might have you know if it was uh, something physical was it something psychological was that a combination but even a couple of weeks before his death uh, they said that he had to be restrained because he was threatening to injure himself you know so the timeline leads a lot of people to say that he was having issues and that he took his own life the other thing is he was shot twice. Uh, once was he grazed his head, grazed, and then he had one in the uh, in the in the stomach area, in the abdomen, and he did not die immediately. He did live until the morning, the next morning, and that's when he died. So what what other people say that Lewis? No, 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 not Mary with Lewis. He would never take his own life. Never do that. You know, he, he was too great of a person, and so on. And so they want to they want to exhume the body, do the forensics, and determine at what angles were these shots made. You know, was it something that he could have inflicted himself, or was this a situation where it was more likely somebody shot at him? You know, so but at this point, the National Park Service has no no uh, indication that that they're willing to allow for an exhumation of the body. If he was assassinated, walk us through like the potential killers. Yeah, you know, there are some who say that it might have been politically motivated. Uh, there are others who simply say that he was he was robbed. You know, so if it was a situation where somebody did shoot him, again, it depends on on uh, which story you want to go with. Because there are those who say that that uh, people back in uh, in the territory that they wanted Lewis gone. Uh, there were people that felt that he was not doing a very good job as a, as the governor of the territory. Um, then there were other people who just simply said that, well, he was probably just robbed. You know, there was a Natchez Trace in, in, in Tennessee, and it was a place that was known for people to, to rob others along the way, and that might have been the case as well. So it, it's hard to say who might have. And there's a lot of different theories. There's a lot of different books that are out there as far as who might have done it and, and, and the motives, 
motives be- behind it. And this took place at like a bed and breakfast that he wow, kind of like a roadhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Like he like randomly stopped at, but, <laughs> but one of, one of the suspects that people threw out there is like the, the woman who ran the place because Grinder. she had some conflicting stories about she like heard the first gunshot. She saw him kind of crawling around or something. Mm. Right. And so there's, there's suspicion around her. And yeah, and, she was and, saying that he was tripping out so bad and making so much racket that they didn't even go in there when they heard the gunshot. Yeah. Yeah, a grinder stand is what it was called, and you'll see. Yeah, the old, the old bed and breakfast That's called right. grinder stand. <laughs> either, either grinder or just G R I N E R. But um, a story that she heard him pacing and mumbling to himself, and uh, throughout the night, and then she heard the gunshot, and so it's one of those stories again where um, what. What she had to say about the incident was was pretty brief and not all. I mean, it's not like she was taken in and, and given a full interview or anything like that. She just basically simply stated that he was he was up all night and he was talking and, and mumbling to himself. And, and then she heard the gunshot and, and then goes from there. Are there historians you really respect that believe that he was assassinated? Or are most of the folks that um, like know Lewis and Clark well convinced he was suicide. Most, most historians will go with the suicide. Um, but there are others who are, are adamant that no, no, he just would not have done that. And they're the ones who have really pushed for the, uh, the exhuming of the body. Yeah. And a lot of them are just people who want to be supportive of the Lewis story. Others are people who want to you know, make sure that we're telling the, the right side of history, that his reputation as, as far as committing suicide versus being assassinated, that that gets recorded in the history books. I can't believe so he's buried on park service land. Right. But does that, how does that give the park service sort of like domain over the body? Their, their policy overall, from what I gather is that they just simply do not allow the exhumation of, of any bodies. Now we were talking about archeological sites earlier. What happens when. But, uh, but hear me out. Let's, okay. let's say I get buried. Okay whatever, my body gets buried on park service land, right? And then later a family. That's not going to happen. But no, no, I'm saying <laughs> later a fa- like my family's like, I want the body back. Is it really the park service's place to say no? Well, at this point, there's really no family that is that insistent that they want to have the body exhumed and reburied. I guess because he didn't have his own kids, right? right so there's right. no like I person mean, with a real no direct yeah, like it's lineage. not his parents, not his kids. Right. When part of this calculus is that where he's buried, there's like 20 other people buried as well, right? That they could potentially not even hit Lewis if right. if they were to go in. And oh. his his remains, I think, were reburied once. You know, so. It, it, it's it just, I can't remember the situation as far as why they were being exposed, but a reburial. And then, of course, you have the, uh, the more notable marker identifying Lewis. But, uh, yeah. Oh, it, so it's a little bit of a crapshoot yeah, anyway. Yeah. Man, I think they ought to dig it up anyway, though, man. <laughs> I don't really see what the big deal about it is. <laughs> I'd dig it up and have a look. I think we got to get to. I'm not trying to be uh, crass. I'm just saying I don't really see the big deal about it. It's like the guy's dead. Who cares? Then there's people say, well, the band's dead. Let him rest. <laughs> Listen, man, he can go back to rest. He's been resting all this time. It's just a brief interruption yeah. in his rest. He can go like I, back and rest some more. I think after you know, they take a look. Clark, Jefferson, uh, those who really knew him well, they didn't question it. 
They, they, they thought, yeah, they could see him doing something like that, that he'd be that drastic. Jefferson knew his family well and said that his father and I think his mother and like aunts and uncles had depression and like had manic episodes as well. You'd also be to assume he was assassinated, ignore the evidence of like you said, he tried to commit suicide like a month earlier at Fort something. I don't remember where. And then he'd even written in his journal when he turned 31, like a mm. tremendously sad entry that was like. I reflected that I had yet done but little, very little indeed, to further the happiness of the human race or to advance the information of the succeeding generation. And from there, he goes on and he's like, uh, talks about how lazy he's been and like uh, just a waste of space. He was really? like, sounds like a guy with syphilis. Yeah. He's <laughs> real excited about how he's going to stay at a cute little bed and breakfast this yes. weekend, though. <laughs> that was grinder station. <laughs> Yeah, Spencer, that, that particular <laughs> journal entry is, is one that's noted quite often. That says, is it yeah, legit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's in his journal. Yeah, it's his writing and everything. But it was the fact that, you know, he, at this point, he's 31 years old. They've, they finally met the people whom they've been looking for for the last four months or whatever during the summer. You know, it was really a situation where things should have been more, much more upbeat. And instead he's saying, man, I haven't done anything. I'm such a loser. You know, and it's like... Yeah, you, know, you, you get that impression from what he what he writes, and and people see that. You know, and that's that's again where Stephen Ambrose and Undaunted Courage keeps talking about this, the, these bouts of melancholy that he just simply went through these periods where he just really seems depressed. And I'll, I think a lot of people just kind of side with that story then. Yeah, and it was also likely that most of those fellas ended the expedition with malaria, which can cause dementia, um, which would also like add to the the case that this was suicide. I didn't know they were suffering from malaria. Yeah, I, n- I never heard malaria. That's interesting. I think they just assume that most of those folks like got it at some point anyway, right? Right. It was, I mean, the variety of different diseases that, that they suffered from. But the interesting thing is that Clark in the uh, middle part, maybe 1826, 1828, somewhere in there, he uh, he made a list of all the members of the expedition, that the permanent expedition, expedition members that headed from from the Mandan villages out the Pacific coast. And out of those 33, 16 of them were dead by 1825 or so he noted, including Sacagawea. You know, he he said, no, Sacagawea died December 20th, 1812. She probably would have been in her mid twenties. So again, the controversy as far as how long did she live? Where is she buried? I mean, there's a lot of controversy surrounding that, but a lot of the members of the exhibition, you talked about uh, John Coulter turning around, going right back. Uh, there were probably 10 members of the expedition who did just that. They uh, they went went right back. You know, they, they come back after over two years and four months, and they turn around, they go right back, and they're going to look into uh, uh, either trading and then later trapping. You know, why, why, why trade when you can cut out the middle person and, and go ahead and just trap yourself? And, uh, you know, you get into that whole period of time um, between – uh, John Potts and George Drewyer and and John Coulter. I mean, there were there were probably probably ten of them. Oh, I think. Hold on, Potts, the guy that got killed at Three Forks and right. got all got his genitals cut off mm. and everything. Right. He was a. He, I didn't know he was an expedition member. He was. John Potts was an expedition member. Oh, uh, well, so they knew each other well. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of these. Uh, in fact, there was one time. Like where I John, didn't know him and Coulter had that much history together. Right. John Coulter, he goes. Uh, he joins the two trappers or traders that are heading up the river. He's the only member to be dismissed early from the expedition, and then uh, he goes on his ventures. And then he goes back and and uh, 
he meets up with a couple of the other former members of the expedition. He joins them. He turns around. He goes right back to the to the west. You know, um, there's a little bit of there's kind of an interesting bit of deal making that shows you the leadership style of Lewis and Clark around when Coulter wants to go back with the trappers and traders, and everybody's supportive, and Lu- and some whoever Lewis or Clark whoever says. We'll let him go if everyone promises that no one else will ask. Right. right. <laughs> it's like an interesting right. deal, right? It's like, hey, we're, we're not home yet, you know, so we can't have everybody just disbanding. And, and I don't know how many other members would have uh, been interested in leaving, but I always think it's interesting that really after all that period of time, John Coulter was ready to go right back. Oh, I love yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Um, so it, I'm, I'm kind of interested in... Uh, because these, like the Mandan village again is, is like this social hub, right? Lots of trading coming in and, and with that trading comes news. Do we know what was said about the expedition, uh, in other parts of the, of the world, like folks who didn't come in direct contact with the expedition, like what it was regarded as from, uh, a native perspective or a trapping perspective out there? Um, there is a book, I can't remember the author, but it's called Through Indian Eyes. And then even during the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition, the National Park Service really had a, had a strong emphasis on, on the date of perspective, because you're talking about a situation where Lewis and Clark come along and, and I, I don't think they would have been able to survive had it not been for the different Indian nations with whom they encountered. But at the same time, things are never going to be the same. You know, by the time they're coming back down the Missouri river, they said that they met probably 150 different traders and trappers going up the river. Hmm. Had, had it not been Lewis and Clark, but it would have been somebody else. It's just a matter of time. They were already, I mean, when they came to the different villages, uh, they, there were already a lot of Frenchmen who were among these, these populations. Uh, there were people coming from uh, uh, British Canada coming down. You know, so for a large part of it, it's not like they were the first non-Indians to visit that area, but when they had west and go across the mountains to the Pacific Northwest. Now that's, that's really the, the area that nobody else had, had really ventured in. Yeah. That's, I think it's important. Like yeah. Elliot West writes about the historian, Elliot West writes about this is like at the time of the Lewis and Clark expedition, there were native Americans living on the great plains who had been to Europe, met the King of France and came back to the great plains. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like well, that's the Southern plains, but right. it was like, it wasn't like, a lot had been going on out there for a long time. And then you get into, they get into areas where they were making first contact, mm-hmm. but it was like, right. there was deep European history. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what yeah, year was, yeah. what year did Cabeza de Vaca go like across the South coast of Texas, like 200 yeah, years earlier. Yeah. And then the, the, I always say the Vrandres, but the Verandres brothers and the family who came down, uh, 1738, 1742, 1743. We know that they were at least, as far as um, the pier, Fort Pier area, they left a, a marker there, a lead plate with their uh, the names on it and the date. Uh, you know, so that's that's back in the 1700s, uh, a fair amount of time before Lewis and Clark came along. And and like I said, you, you come across the uh, the Mandan, and they have uh, Rene Jassom, who serves as a translator. When they're with the Arikara, it's Joseph Gravelin. Uh, when they're with the the Ancient Sioux, it's it's Pierre Dorian, you know. So like guys that have been there long enough to know the language, right? Know the language. They had families. They had lived among these people for for a number number of years. Yeah. So, 
So yeah, that case, it wasn't all known, unknown, I should say. Uh, in fact, they did have journals uh, that they could look at and, and anticipation of who they were going to meet and where they might meet them, all those uh, different aspects of it. But uh, with the Mandan and some of the other tribes, uh, the Mandan chief, Sheheka, uh, White Coyote, he actually, on the way down the river, he actually went with them to St. Louis and eventually went out to the east and, and met with Jefferson. Um, Eagle Feather, I mentioned him earlier, the one who was wailing when he couldn't understand why they were punishing John Newman like that. He goes uh, all the way out to Washington, D.C., becomes sick, and, and he dies. And that does not go over well with the Arikara. From that point on, the Arikara become very anti-American, and it really affects the, the fur trade, certainly, because that's when, instead of a... Fur traders going up the Missouri River, now all of a sudden they start looking more at the South Pass, thinking that, yeah, this would be a better way to go. You're avoiding both the, uh, the Arikara and, and, the, and the Blackfeet. So not that all the tribes are, were pro-Lewis and Clark and friendly, but they, uh, they did provide a great deal of assistance for them, certainly. And, and I, I really don't think that they would have survived had it not been for the different nations with whom they came in contact. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with, and my God have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years you get one of these knives up and open it it is sharp like something that came from outer space and here's the deal they make knives that can be sharpened you can work on these knives if you don't want to work on them you send it to them and they'll work on it they'll get it sharp phenomenal hunting knives if you want to see them in action we just did uh me and uh john hayes the taxidermist just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX Off Road Map and Navigation app is the best to find off road trails and off grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. 
I've been using Onyx for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without Onyx. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better. Because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Yanni, what uh, what were you saying we never got into? Oh, just hunting and fishing and eating on you the know, expedition. I got one more question, and we'll talk about that. Sure. Because you just mentioned the Blackfeet. They only killed one guy, right? They lost one guy from an... What do you call it when your appendix ruptures? Oh, appendicitis. appendicitis, right? And they killed a guy, right? I mean, they killed a Blackfeet. When when Lewis Lewis like didn't Lewis, the, the the expedition members didn't they kill a Blackfeet man? Right, there were two that were killed. Oh, they killed two Blackfeet right, men. Right, and uh, when and like forever when, earned the enmity of exactly, the, of the Blackfeet nation. When they were returning, Lewis and three of the other men had broken off. Clark was taking the, the Yellowstone, the main part of the of the expedition, and. Um, when Lewis and, and these three other men met the uh, a group of about 10 or so Blackfoot, um, they ended up spending the evening with them. The next morning they awake and it appears that they're stealing their horses, uh, Lewis's horses and his men. And they pointed out that um, one person stabbed and killed one of the Blackfoot and Lewis shot and killed another one. Well, Lewis did. Yeah. And to add insult to injury, when they left... Uh, they placed Jefferson peace medals around them. So mm. there was no question as to who <laughs> did this, you know, that this was, th- these were Americans who did this. And so from that point oh, on. They placed Jefferson peace medals around the around, big, around their neck. The, around the dead guys. Around the two men whom they just killed. Right. You shitting. So from that point on, like I said, the Rickra and the, uh, and the Blackfoot, they, uh, they were the two groups that really did not support American. See, that's what's crazy about is like, is there any chance that, the Blackfeet who caught Coulter and Potts in the upper Three Forks region, or the up, you know, the Three Forks of Missouri. Is there any chance those dudes knew who those dudes were? I don't know if it was so much they knew that they were members of the Lewis and Clark expedition from before. It's just that they were Americans. Yeah, and, and that was, if that you was were making thing. a movie I mean, about it, dude, <laughs> if I made a movie about it, I'd have it be that whoever was standing next to the guy that they killed would be like, oh, I remember you boys. Fancy yeah. seeing you here. <laughs> and then the other like close brush to death with that, that, that they, the crew had was Lewis got shot by one of his own men 
in the butt in like a very national lampoon way by somebody who thought they spotted an elk walking through the woods. Right. Pierre Herzat, he was uh, one of the more notable members. He was not a military person, but uh, he was known as a, as a good boatsman. He was the one who would often play the fiddle whenever they were celebrating the, the 4th of July or Christmas or something like that. So he, he's noted quite often, but he also is said to have had poor eyesight. And mm -hmm. so on this uh, situation, when they're coming back, uh, Cruzat shoots what he thinks is an elk and it turns out to be Lewis. And it's just one of those situations where, again, he could have gone this whole way and then been shot by one of his own men. But uh, it was a, a flesh wound in the, in the upper thigh, in the buttock area. And uh, so he stayed in the boat for the next several days. When they reach back to the Arikara villages, Clark goes in and meets with the new Arikara leader, Gray Eyes. There's nothing about Lewis, well, because Lewis is, is on the boat. You know, he, he's not going to get up and walk around. And even, even at that, towards the end of August, they point out that Lewis finally got up and walked along the shoreline a little bit. Hmm. Well, it was notable, notable because he'd been shot and he was re recovering from that injury. But yeah, it was interesting that he <laughs> ends up suffering a, an injury that could have been a very fatal injury, certainly, by one of his own men. Before yeah, so you, we, uh, yeah, and when it was all said and done, he'd been shot three times. <laughs> when it was all said and done, yes, twice by himself, supposedly. Uh, Coulter killed the first mule deer, was the first uh, American to kill a mule deer, right? Isn't that, isn't that what they say? I'm not sure if he was the first one, but... Uh, oh, no, no, no. He, he killed the first mule deer that was scientifically described. Right. Of course, he wasn't uh, the first American and, to kill him. And that's deer. the thing, you know, Lewis, he was the one who was responsible for uh, identifying the, the different animals and, and giving the detailed description. So, uh, and, when, and when Lewis wrote, and there were certainly big gaps in his journals, but when he wrote, he wrote with such, such detail. And we talked about this before last, last October, but, you know, uh, when he described a plant, he would draw the leaves of the roots. Uh, he would, he would go into all the details. Uh, when he described an animal, he would go into incredible amount of detail. And so, yeah, in that area of, well, uh, Paul Russell Cutright, who wrote Lewis and Clark, pioneering naturalists, uh, for, for outdoors people, for hunters. And so on. That, that's probably a book that I would really recommend because he, he talks about, you know, by today's standards, the different counties and, and what plants, what animals were identified by Lewis and Clark, and especially Lewis in that particular area. Mm -hmm. You know, so it puts things in perspective, but, but, uh, yeah, Lewis goes into so much detail. And, and what I was going to say is Paul Russell Cutright, he said the area between the Niobrara River and the Bad River, that that was probably one of the most, uh, significant areas in terms of plants and animals. For the native populations, they knew all about these plants and animals, but for science to record them, that was, that was something different. You know, so they said 178 plants, 122 different species and subspecies of animals that Lewis identified. That number has changed over the years because people start looking at it and say, oh, no, actually that was already recorded, you know. But it was a situation where he, he had so much detail when he talked about, I always think of the, 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 the jackrabbit, for example, because uh, when they killed their first jackrabbit, uh, Lewis had been watching this and, 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 uh, he goes out and he says, okay, the jackrabbit about two and a half feet long, six and a half pounds. Uh, the ears are about six inches long, three inches wide. And then he goes out and he measures because he'd been watching this leaping from place to place. And especially when it was fleeing. And he said that from the point where it took off and where it landed was approximately 21 feet. I mean, it's, it's those kind of details that yeah, Lewis yeah. used, uh, when he talked about different, different plants and animals. It's, it's like astonishing how much they got right without prior knowledge, but talk about some of the things that they got wrong because it's like, 
pretty comical. Some of the mm. the stuff like calling a bighorn sheep an ibex, or uh, you, you mentioned to me last October something about they thought they saw a tiger, but we don't know what that was. Right, right. Uh, you know, there was a lot of times where because they, I mean, Lewis did go through his tutoring, and so he worked with uh, people like uh, Benjamin um, Smith Barton and how to do uh, preserving the specimens of plants and animals, and and looking at books. And a lot of times, I think it was based on the fact that they knew that this type of animal existed, and so when they see something similar out here, they they kind of go by that by a similar yeah, it, name. It wouldn't be so much getting it wrong; it's just basing. What right. they're seeing on what yeah. someone else saw and described. Right, something right? similar to to what they're seeing. What was the tiger story, though? The, uh, the tiger cat, uh, it, it goes back to uh, the point where uh, I think it was in July of 1805, and Lewis would do this quite often, where he'd go off by himself, and uh, he was out exploring. He, uh, he shoots at a buffalo, and uh, he does not reload right away. And all of a sudden, he realized that there's a grizzly bear very close to him. So his action where, where was, was he when this happened? Um, it was somewhere here in Montana. I'm not sure exact point. It would have been in July, so I'd have to look at the, the journals and see exactly where they were at that particular point. But it was, uh, it was here in Montana, and uh, he ends up going into a nearby river, getting in deep enough so that if the grizzly bear follows him, that he'd have to start paddling. He wouldn't be able to actually attack him. And Lewis and Clark, they both had what were called espontoons, uh, basically lances. Uh, they used them for walking sticks. It was really kind of a symbol of, of officers. And they had a point on the end. And so he figured if he'd get into this river deep enough that if this grizzly bear did come in after him, he'd be able to defend himself, uh, defend himself a little bit better. Well, eventually the grizzly bear takes off. And as he's heading back towards the main camp, uh, three buffalo start to chase him. And then he gets to another point where he sees an animal that he describes as a tiger cat. And uh, what he actually meant by a tiger cat, it's hard to say. Uh, I shouldn't say most, but it's been kind of divided. A lot of people in the Northwest, they say, well, a tiger cat, they're talking about a lynx or a bobcat, something like that. Uh, for others, uh, they said, no, a tiger cat was a reference to a wolverine. Oh. And so there was this wolverine that was looked looked like it was ready to pounce, and then he shot at it, and then it went into its burrow. And he went and he looked, and he saw that the uh, the marks that were left looked like the the tracks of a, of a tiger. You know, so he gets that idea of the tiger cat. But what exactly was it that he? I like he the, saw? I like the wolverine yeah. idea, man. Yeah, and that doesn't that sound like a marmot. To, no, that seems like the the most popular story is that, that he's probably a probably a wolverine. Also, oh. when they were in Montana. I think it was in the Great Falls area. They, multiple men talk about this in the journals where they hear some mysterious booms that sound like cannons, but it wouldn't make sense that it would be cannons. And I've heard people speculate that it was like an earthquake or a glacier. So tell us about that story, like what they heard and, and what people think it might've been. And of course things echo so much, you know, and, and that was part of it. I, I think that the sounds that they were hearing were something that, that surprised them, something that, that they really were kind of wondering, what is that? Where is that coming from? But even to try to try to narrow it down, they had such a difficult time even doing so, you know, because again, it's just the, the loud sounds, crashes that make uh, that are, are made. So, I, bighorn sheep. Uh, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've been too. on the river. Yeah, Could have been sheep. Yeah. And, and been like, son of a bitch, somebody else up there shooting at yeah. my geese. <laughs> Who keeps shooting at twenty-two? <laughs> so yeah, so. Yeah, so I, I honestly, I don't have a whole lot more to add to that because it was such a mystery to them. They really didn't have a, a whole lot of explanation. You also talked about how uh, when the tiger cat was spotted, he was off by himself, right? And I think a lot of people who aren't very familiar with the Lewis and Clark story 
don't realize how often these guys were splitting up. I think in your head, it's like, okay, 45 people left and there were 45 people together the whole time or whatever. But in reality, they often split up with like, you know, groups of 20 and 25 or, or 10 and 30 and, and 15 or something like that. And a lot of times when they came to different rivers, uh, the Marias River, for example, which way to go? You know, all the men of the expedition, except for Lewis and Clark said, this is the way we need to go. Lewis and Clark said, no, we're going to go this way. But they took a lot of time going up. They, they split the group up and some went this direction, some went that direction. They came back, they reported, and then uh, the captains had to make that final decision, which way we're going to go. But there were, there were a lot of times like that. On the way back, when I said that Lewis and three men went to uh, explore more of the northern part of Montana and uh, Clark and the rest, they went down the, the Yellowstone uh, yeah, that happened quite often. And a lot of times, even when uh, they met the Shoshone, it was Lewis and that, that front party and Clark and the rest coming up behind. And a lot of times they would just simply leave a note on a, on a tree limb, you know, and you think, well, how in the world does somebody catch that? Oh, they, they left us a note, you know, but they did. It was just remarkable that they could go in so many different directions and yet they, they would still meet up. You know, it's just, it's just, it was fascinating that they could do so and, and do it over and over and over again. I mentioned George Shannon. He was the youngster of the group. Uh, he was the one who's often mentioned a lot in Lewis and Clark circles for being lost the most often. Um, there was a, a one situation early in the expedition uh, uh, back in August and, and September, and he went out hunting and he thought that the expedition had passed him. So he's pushing forward trying to catch up to the expedition for 16 days. He's pushing forward. He runs out of, out of, uh, ammunition. He, uh, shoots a stick and kills a rabbit. He eats some, uh, some berries along the way. And after 16 days, he, he's, he's starving. He's tired. He sits down and here comes the expedition, expedition <laughs> behind him. Uh, the whole time they were trying to catch up to him and he kept thinking that he had to catch <laughs> up to them. So I always tell, uh, you know, the parents, when you tell your children, you get lost, stay in one place, don't wander around. Well, that's exactly what George Shannon was doing. He was wandering. He was trying to catch up to, uh, to the expedition. They were actually behind him. When you say he shot a stick, you mean he crammed a stick down the muzzle? Right. Whoa. And shot it out. That's, that's all he had. I mean, it's, he was last resort. Yeah. So 16 days he was, he was lost. To me, being lost just means you're finding stuff. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's the good part about being lost. You mm. discover all sorts of stuff. He probably just didn't get credit because he didn't have his journal. Didn't was, have his journal. Yeah, he was falling out of military, <laughs> yeah. uh, whatever structure there. You know, and and, and people often, uh, again, jokingly say that you know he died in a land of plenty because you have all this wildlife, you have all this around you, but you can't kill anything. You know, so for 16 days, you're eating a few berries here and there and a, and a rabbit. You know, that was it. That's all he could come up with. Talk about how the whole time Lewis and Clark are doing this expedition, I, I think they don't even realize that they're also being hunted by like some Spanish mercenaries. How close did the Spanish mercenaries like come to getting them or, or not come close to finding them? Um, not very close. Uh, the, the, the Spaniard you're talking about is, is a man by the name of Pedro Vial. And he was commissioned by the Spanish. Uh, the Spanish had a lot of resentment when the French sold the uh, Louisiana Territory to the United States. And it was a situation that once Lewis and Clark, I mean, you can say, well, yeah, but the United States bought Louisiana Territory. That only goes up to the Continental Divide. 
Uh, anything west of the Rockies, that's that's claimed by, again, the Spanish, by the British, by the Russians. And so once they get beyond that area, they're the kind of fair game, if you will. And so the Spanish sent out Pedro Vial at least three times, and there were probably four different expeditions by the Spanish themselves to try to intercept Lewis and Clark. Uh, each time they sent them out, they were they were way off. Uh, they and were, they were hoping to have a gunfight with them. They were hoping to intercept them, take their records, uh, certainly probably not just imprison them, but probably, yeah, do, do away with them uh, because they saw them as a threat to uh, the Spanish territory. How many guys did they have with them? It varied. Um, there, there were some situations where they had as many as 50 or 60 men with them. Wow. Yeah, so they were Damn, man. more down, you know, when uh, Zebulon Pike he was uh, also in a situation similar to Lewis and Clark. Of course, he's going to the southwest when they're going to the northwest. And Pike was was captured by the Spanish. And so whether, you know, eventually they, they released him, but would they have done the same thing with Clark? Maybe a bigger question, would Lewis and Clark allow themselves to be caught? Yeah. Or would they have put up a fight to the end? I think they probably would have put up a fight to the end. Jed Smith got caught and detained by the Spanish when he crossed the Mojave into California. Right. Yeah, so that, I mean, the Spanish were very concerned about what was going on. Did Lewis and Clark know that they were being hunted? No, no. Wow. No, they had no idea because they were so far removed from what the Spanish were doing that, that there was no communication, no indication that, oh, yeah, the Spanish are, are trying to intercept you or anything like that. You know, and then you're, you're looking at for, you know, two years and four months plus that they're off the face of the earth. I mean, <laughs> nobody knows where they are, what they're doing, if they're still alive, anything like that. And so it's not until they start coming back that they start running into a lot of these uh, people who are heading out west for the, the trade and for the trapping. And uh, then, of course, people realize, oh, they're, they're still here. They're still alive. They made it. And even at that, you talk about Lewis and his depression. When he gets back, he starts writing a letter to Jefferson. And he goes on to say that, oh, we accomplished all these great things. We identified this and that. and, and uh, But then he goes on to say, however, we, we failed to find a good water route to the Pacific Northwest, which was really their big objective, to explore the, uh, the waters of the Missouri River across the continent and, and try to use that for trade purposes. And it, it just didn't exist, you know. Uh, so in that case, all these great things, but... Sorry, we, we failed. We, we missed the, the number one objective that you had for us. When I read Undaunted Courage, I was, I was very frustrated uh, as an armchair quarterback 200 years later about how it seemed every interaction with a tribe that went poorly could have been diffused by giving them what they wanted, which was usually like ammo or guns. And so was, was it like a strategic choice that we don't, they could be our enemy, so we don't want to give them ammo or guns, or were they like really limited in supplies that that stuff was so valuable? Like why weren't they more willing to, to part with those things instead of always trying to negotiate with like beads and, and metals that the tribes didn't care about? I, I I'll think, handle that one. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it depended on the, on the tribe because they had, uh, when they met with the Yankton Sioux, August 30th and 31st, Things went really well. They were very agreeable to trading with American traders in the future. But there was a, a Yankton Sioux uh, elder by the name of Half Man, and he said, now the next group you meet, the Teton or the Titawan Sioux, their their ears will not be as open as ours. They're not going to be as receptive. So, And, of course, they, they knew, they heard about the reputation of Lakota even 
even back east, you know, even before all this began. And when they're in St. Louis, certainly there's more people saying, oh, you know, watch out for the, for the Titawan. And so they, uh, they get there and those four days, September 25th, 26th, 27th, and 28th, are just up and down. It's a roller coaster ride. Uh, they talk about how the 25th, uh, they invited the, the three uh, leaders, uh, Black Buffalo, Buffalo Medicine, and the one who was referred to as the partisan out to the keelboat, offered them alcohol. And that when they went to return them to the shoreline, that the one who's referred to as the partisan, he started to feign drunkenness and he kind of brushed up against Clark. It gets to the point where Clark draws his sword and the men on, on board the boats, they start getting their, their weapons ready. The Lakota, they start getting their bow and arrows ready. And there's this very tense moment that if anybody would have fired a shot on either side, it, it probably would have been the end of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Fortunately, uh, Black Buffalo, he was the one who, who stepped in and calmed things down. And, and uh, But when they stayed on an island that night, they called it Bad Humored Island because it was not a good day. The next day, they talk about feasting. They talk about how Lewis and Clark were individually carried in on buffalo robes, that there was a, a night of dancing and, you know, completely different scenario than the day before. But it goes back and forth like that. And then, then they find out that uh, through a couple of the men, uh, Pierre Cruzat, whom I'd mentioned before, the, the person who accidentally shot Lewis, he was uh, a French and Omaha background. Uh, there was another person by the name of Francois Labiche who was also French and Omaha. And because of the Omaha side of their, their family, they knew a little bit about the, uh, the Lakota language. And from what they could gather, they, they thought that they're not going to let us leave. They're going to they're gonna prevent us from going up the Missouri River. So eventually on that, that fourth day when they're ready to, to take off, again, you have uh, the partisans saying, come on, just give me some more uh, tobacco. You know, just give us some more gifts. We know you have a whole boatload of all these things. But it's one of those things that, one, they didn't want to be bullied into doing something like that. And, two, they certainly did not want to give them any, any weapons that they could use because they, they just had that reputation. When they meet with the Arikara, it, it, you know, that that was went quite well with the Mandans. You know, they they spent the whole winter uh, working with the Mandans. Uh, when they crossed the uh, the Lolo Pass, took much longer than they anticipated. But when they met with the Nez Perce, they were so hungry that they they gorged themselves on on dried fish and, and camas roots, and and they became very ill. I mean, they're lying around moaning and groaning. They're completely incapacitated. And the Nez Perce thought about, boy, it'd be so easy to go around and just kill all these guys and take their weapons. They'd be the most powerful nation in, in that area. And uh, there was a, a Nez Perce woman with the name of Watkuis, who, similar to Sakakawea, she had been taken by the Blackfeet, ended up uh, being sold up in Canada, living with, with white men, and then eventually returned to her people. And she said that when she lived with the, with the white men that they treated her very well. And so she was the one who acted on behalf of, of the Lewis and Clark expedition and said, don't do them any harm. You know, they're, they're not bad people. But again, it would have been one of the situations where it could have gone either way. So it really depended on... Who yeah, she could have been saying, they're obviously going to die out here anyway. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's one of the things where so so many things are just so pivotal. It, it could have gone one, mm -hmm. one way or the, or, or the other. So... Yeah, it's fascinating to think about, man. If they'd all got dusted off, like... Everything you know, you get into like this, like the butterfly hypothesis, and what's that thing called? Butterfly, butterfly, butterfly effect. effect. The butterfly effect. So who knows? But like, it probably would have been inevitable. Like, what happened would have been inevitable, even if they had all gotten killed, right? Manifest destiny. 
you know, probably yeah. would have marched on, man. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. That's like saying, you know, well, can you imagine if Columbus had not discovered uh, the Americas? Well, it would have been somebody else. And, and had it not been Lewis and Clark, it, it would have been somebody else. Yeah. But, uh, you know, how much of a role do they play in history? Like I said, it's not just a story. It's, it's a bunch of stories. You have all these different individuals who are involved in different uh, different tribal nations. Uh, you have uh, all the accomplishments that they had with uh, with the plant life and animal life and geography and geology and and uh, just, just all the things that they did over that period of time. And to think that only one person died, you know, that, that's the mm -hmm. fascinating part. And they always say that, you know, Charles you know, that Floyd. That was a fluke. Yeah. Charles Floyd, if he, he could have been in Philadelphia and he would have died of appendicitis, you know. So the fact that he was out here in the wilderness, well, that was really not a, not a big point, pivotal point, because it was, it was something that was not treatable back then. Oh, uh, one last thing. I wish I'd asked you this earlier. They had different tastes in fish than we have now. Like they like the stuff now. Like didn't they like uh, gold eye, gold eyes, moon eyes a lot? Well, they call them salmon. I think they call them like prairie salmon. So that's yeah. just another like funny spot to to think of a, a gold eye now being a salmon. Yeah, but they liked them, and that's now regarded as like a bony ass trash fish. Right, that's like their favorite fish. They're have good. You ever smoked. tried to eat one? Oh yeah, smoked are great because you could you could peel the meat off the bones. I mean, they're a very good smoked fish. Cutthroats were named after Clark. Right. The Linnaean name. Right. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had like uh, Lewis's woodpecker, uh, Clark's, uh, oh, I'll try to think of it. a bird named after him as is well. He, is, the Clark, is the Clark's nuthatch that Clark? Yes. Okay. Yep. And then the, the cutthroat trout. Clark's nutcracker. Name. Yeah. It? Is it nutcracker yep. or nuthatch? Yep. Exactly. Nutcracker. Okay. Yeah. I feel like most people that are interested in Lewis and Clark uh, pick up Undaunted Courage. But if you were going to suggest another book or another author, what would that be? Depends on your interests. Uh, in, my, in my case, because a lot of my research is with the, uh, the Northern Plains. And so uh, I, I always like looking at James Ronda's uh, Lewis and Clark Among the Indians because it deals with each of the different tribal groups that they came in contact with. Overall, they would meet with nearly 50 different nations uh, a lot of people point out that, oh yeah, but they learned about a lot more, you know, so some people say as, as many as 100 that they were, became knowledgeable about. And, and James Ronda does a really good job approaching it from that perspective, uh, as far as the connection between Lewis and Clark and, and the different groups with whom they came in contact. So if that's your interest, uh, if you're looking at, at wildlife, uh, there's several that are out there, but I, I mentioned that one that I like. Not very politically correct by today's standards, but uh, Paul Russell Cutright's uh, Lewis and Clark Pioneering Naturalists. Uh, I, I like that one because it does break it down, what they were seeing in terms of plant life and animal life throughout the expedition. And of course, Gary Moulton's uh, 13 volumes of the Lewis and Clark journals with all the notations, that's that's always a, a, a something that you have to look at, I guess, just because it does have the maps that includes you know where they were and, and how how things have changed, like the Missouri River, how the course has changed so much. Uh, but he puts it into perspective, again, as far as where would this, where, where did this actually take place? You know, so that that's important. Um, Undaunted Courage. Uh, I, I heard Stephen Ambrose speak several times uh, before he passed away, and, and he, he always talked about how when he first uh, – went to his publisher and said, well, I'd like to do something on Lewis and Clark. This was back in 1996. And so people were beginning to think of the bicentennial coming up in 2004, 2006. And uh, his publisher said, well, you know, very re reluctantly, he said, well, how about if we start with 500,000 copies? 
And uh, Ambrose said 500,000 copies. I hope more gets sold than that. Uh, by 2001, 3 million copies had been sold. Uh, it, it still is one that, that people know, Stephen Ambrose and, and Undaunted Courage. Um, it does have its critics as well because he makes a, a lot of assumptions. You know, it's like, well, in, in the case of the, uh, of the Titawan situation, he talks about, it spends a whole page talking about, well, what if somebody would have fired a shot? You know, uh, they probably would have, you know, focused on, on Lewis and Clark first and, you know, went through this whole scenario and then, then the others would have drifted back down the river to escape and it didn't happen. You know, Black Buffalo intervened and things calmed down and, and they made it through that, that whole situation. But he says, what if, you know, what if? I know, you, know, you cover that stuff stepped, on a podcast. He stepped, right. out of his, <laughs> he stepped out of his role as a historian. Right, right. Yeah. And, then, and then there's a lot of other times too where he'll, uh, he'll spend, uh, you know, half a page, three-fourths of a page, and he'll say, well, according to James Ronda, well, then he'll quote James Ronda for a half a page or three-fourths of a page, and then people start thinking, maybe I should just read James Ronda, you know, because that's what, mm -hmm. you know, what made him, I think, a prolific writer is that he used other people's works extensively. Yeah. And, and he did get into a little trouble in, with that and plagiarism issues towards the very end. Uh, but I think it was just the fact that, you know, he did rely on a lot of sources and he was putting out books after books after books. Yeah. And he's on top. Saying, people yeah, want to knock him yeah, down. Yeah. And other people are doing a lot of the research for him and he's putting it all together. But when you read Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage, I mean, having listened to the person speak in person, or if you watch him in some documentary, you can just hear his voice when you're reading his work. You know, it, it, that, well, it just sounds like Stephen Ambrose. You can just hear it so well. Uh, I've read references here and there that, you know, it's acknowledged that no one has gotten the movie right. You know what I mean? And it's like a, it's like this thing you just can't, it's too big to get a grip on, but it haunts various filmmakers. And I wonder what's like, you know, like, seems like, like CGI would help. Right. It'd be like an epic thing. I just wonder if someone's yeah. ever going to be able to really, Take it on. I, I know that HBO was working on it for a long time. They were going to do a, a kind of a mini series, and that that fell by the wayside. I mean, that was that was probably it's fifteen good. years ago. That were you thinking CGI that. for the Tiger Cat? Yeah, I'm Tiger Cat. <laughs> <laughs> right, but, but just making the yeah. I mean, just yeah. but think about it. You got to deal with you're dealing with tugging rivers four, up boat upstream. Yeah, and you're and, dealing with like oh, forty eight yeah. characters. Whatever. What number? Forty eight characters encountering mm -hmm. fifty. Groups, right. like 50 right. indigenous groups. I mean, it, it's huge, how, right? Yeah. And it, 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 like, it haunts people how, that you could ever really do It'd it. It'd be good for... Uh, I'd end it with that suicide. Like, uh, you know, big or, budget, or could do it. big budget, multi-season series. But the thing man. is that you're always going to have the, uh, the the drama part that's added to make it a good movie, yep. you know? And and there has been a couple like a little of, love story oh, about oh, York. And, oh, yeah. And, and there was that movie that came out back in the 19... 50s, I think it was. Uh, Donna Reed played the part of of, of uh, Sacagawea, Sacagawea back then. Uh, he had Fred McMurray from My Three Sons. He he was playing Lewis. Uh, Charlton Heston played Clark. Uh, there's there's a knife fight where Clark and Toussaint Charbonneau are, are going around the campfire fighting over Sacagawea, you know, which was not not the case or anything like that. But you know, and then yeah. there's one part where they can't going, help themselves, man. <laughs> they're going over the uh, the portage of the Great Falls, and and uh, 
you know, they're, they're pulling this keel boat with them, which the keel boat had gone down river. There's no way you're going to pull that great big boat over the mountains uh, or anything like that, but it's in there and it's just ridiculous. Um, there's also one called, uh, I can't think of the case right now, but Matthew Perry and, uh, oh, um, oh, is it Chris Farley? Chris Farley. Yeah. And, and that's where you see the Spanish chasing them, you know, Pedro Vial. Well, Farley and, and Matthew Perry, they're, they're, they're leading an expedition at the same time of Lewis and Clark. So they're kind of racing Lewis and Clark. You know, I get it. It, it, it makes for a funny movie and everything, but it, there's a lot of, yeah, right. Uh, but anytime you have a situation like this, uh, you're, you're going to have something thrown in there for special effects. In South Dakota, quite honestly, we all laugh at, at The Revenant, the movie. Oh, what do you think? dude, that was the greatest crime, greatest crime against America. <laughs> it happens in, in August uh, up in the northwestern part of South Dakota. Yeah. And you see the mountains. Okay, we don't have mountains there like that. There should be like a Nuremberg <laughs> trial for the, for the people that there, made that movie, There was, man. There was a, a lot of things in there that just thought, no, no, no. Yeah, no. shooting so, that shit in British oh, Columbia. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> oh, but yeah. man, if you like huge grunting, attack. if you like hours of grunting, that's huge, a show. Huge attack against Grunting America. and crawling. I, and and yeah. I think that's exactly what would happen if they did something with Lewis and Clark. It, it, there'd be so many things added to it just to liven up the story. Oh, they, yeah, yeah, it'd be bad, man. Yeah. I would, like yeah. one of the many things I want to do when I retire is take on Boone in film. You know, I yeah. think it'd be great yeah. to write to write a script. That would be. Uh, but man, I would never want to take this on because it's yeah. like you know what I mean. Yeah. Like well, Boone spent a lot of time with a couple other people. Yeah, and then as I mentioned at the very beginning. A lot of the things that I mentioned today, they're very controversial. I mean, there are going to be people that cringe at some of the things I said, and there are going to be people say, "Yeah, yeah, that's." Oh, that's tell right. me the you most know. controversial thing you said: uh, Sacagawea versus Sacagawea. Oh, uh, <laughs> really, Lewis? Oh, uh, give murder. me some Lewis murder or suicide. Um, oh, you know, okay, you know, those issues. Her, uh, the role of Sacagawea, um, Lewis' uh, paternity. You know, did he actually father a child? I mean, those are all. Are issues there people that, that really emotionally care about those oh, answers? Yes, <laughs> yes. They emotionally care. <laughs> yes, they they get tied into it so much. And, and when I give talks as, as a teacher, a lot of times I'll, I'll point out, well, you know, there are people who believe this and there are people who believe that. And, and I don't always say, well, I think that this is what happened to Lewis or I think that this is you know, what happened. I have my, my personal leanings, but uh, at the same time, I realize that there are people who are very adamant one way or the other. Yeah. And like I said, go to a Lewis and Clark conference. Nice thing is that they're all experts. The bad thing is they're all experts and they never agree. Hmm. So, Do you go to a lot of those conferences? Um, I, I used to uh, in the last few years with COVID and everything. I, I haven't attended anything, but um, I still do a lot with uh, Lewis and Clark. Uh, I've worked with this family whose oral tradition is that uh, Lewis fathered a, a child, Joseph Despint Lewis. So, oh, I've you work with that family? I, I've been working with them. Uh, I actually submitted an article uh, uh, for peer review. It was turned down because they said, no, it's too controversial. They they, they they didn't want to go into that. And all this we'll family, publish it on our website. <laughs> oh yeah, send it to us, man. <laughs> all, all this family wants to, to know is, you know, what is it is it true or not? What, what was the article so, called? Um the uh, the it was uh Meriwether Lewis, uh Winona and the story of Joseph DeSmith Lewis. Uh so Lewis being the father, Winona being the mother, and Joseph DeSmith Lewis being the child. Have you put it out anywhere? 
No. You no. still wait and try to get it in an academic journal? I, I might. I might. I mean, I'll have to make some revisions with it, but I- Why don't you just tease it with us, <laughs> and then, uh, I, I, In fact, even before I, I came out here, I, I checked with the uh, the person with in the family, and I said, I just want to know, is there any new advances or anything like that? And he said, no. He said, we're, uh, we're just trying to find somebody with the Lewis- connection. And, and like I said, there's no known Lewis descendants, so it would have to be some other type of relation. But with the DNA, if, if they could just do the DNA work. Oh, they got to just go dig that body <laughs> up, man. Come yeah. on. Someone needs to just go in there and do like an act of civil obedience and do a little night rape. <laughs> this fella from Missouri, 70 years old. Oh, yeah. What's yeah. that guy doing well, He's now? got nothing yeah. to lose. Yeah. Yeah. According to Spencer, he's got nothing to lose. Nothing yeah. To lose. Yeah. I'd be like, I want you to get that shovel and get that trowel. Yep. In your bucket, in your backpack, get us some skulls. Man, I like them better now. (laughs) (laughs) I like them better. No, it's fascinating, man. It's good stuff. This is a good time in history. I would like to bend with those guys. I would have been the guy that got lost or eaten by a grizzly bear. I would not have made it. I'm telling you, I have so much anxiety when I'm out on big trips of like, God, this is so awesome right now. But I know tomorrow or tonight, I'm going to bump into another person Mm. and just being in that zone of like, haven't seen anybody for a month. Yeah, not something. And we're still on the river. Right. I mean, come on. I'd I'd give a lot for that. I got to hit you with one more thing. Then we're going to quit. Sure. Um, I'm friends with the historian Dan Flores. Do you know him? No. He's not a Lewis and Clark guy. Oh. But he had a graduate student who did this work on, um, I believe it was his graduate student, did his work on the places where they encountered most wildlife, particularly like the big congregations of, of Buffalo, were contested areas. Like inter like contested by various tribes, okay, and were these sort of like no man's lands, um, and he was kind of like overlaying territories with places where they'd be like, holy shit, there's a lot of buffalo around here, and it would turn out that those weren't places where where large groups of people would be safe and comfortable to camp and hunt, and there was like sort of like back country, you know. Sort of like like the equivalent of like backcountry spots that people right. weren't getting to them right. in because of warfare. You familiar with that idea? Well, you know, for the Cheyenne and, and the Lakota, they they had their rivalry, you know, and so and both of them had very similar lifestyles in terms of their culture. A lot of it depending on on the bison, certainly, but uh, f- both of them also traded with the Arikara. Now, it's one of those things where the Arikara and the Lakota may not get along very well most of the year. But then certain times of year, they would trade and the Lakota would bring in buffalo meat and uh, the Rikara would have corn and beans and squash and they would do that trade. Cheyenne and the Rikara, they were much more friendly towards one another, but there was that animosity that exists between the uh, the Cheyenne and the Lakota as far as territory. Mm-hmm. So that might be something along what you're looking at as far as the Cheyenne area and then the Lakota area, how much of it overlapped, uh, how much did it affect the, the numbers? that were yeah. out there in terms of elk and, and bison. You know, it, it's always kind of amazing when, when people start thinking of, of South Dakota and, and they start talking about places like Elk Point where they recorded seeing hundreds and hundreds of elk because you think of that maybe in the Black Hills, but 
not down in the southeastern part of South Dakota. Or when you start thinking of the uh, the massive herds of bison, and at one point Lewis uh, said something to the fact that from his vantage point he could see maybe 3,000 head of bison uh, or points where they'd be crossing over the river and they'd just have to wait because there's so many of them and they couldn't do anything about it until they were all done. Those things are always interesting because people don't see that. You know, now they see flat farmland and, and, and uh, more of the, the lakes along the Missouri River. Um, but it's changed so much. I, I heard a biologist speak on, uh, several years ago and uh, the question of grizzly bears in South Dakota, how could that possibly? Well, there's a well-known photo of a, of a Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong. Oh, yeah, he Custer. killed one in the Black Hills. Yeah, back yeah. in 1874. And then, of course, you have the story of Hugh Glass being attacked in 1823 uh, and surviving that grizzly bear attack. But the thing is that's so different is that back then, yeah, there were a lot of grizzlies that were out in the plains because that's where the food was. That's where you had thousands and thousands of bison. That's where you had the elk. And it's only when those started getting killed off that you start seeing a change as far as thinking of grizzlies. You think of more of the more of the mountainous areas, perhaps. So there's been a lot of changes that have taken place over a period of time that affected a lot of different groups. And like I said, for Lewis and Clark, there's no way they would have survived. I don't think that they would have survived without the assistance of the, of the native populations. But at the same time, it really marks the beginning of the end for native cultures. Things will never, ever be the same after Lewis and Clark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you for having me. You satisfied, Spencer? Oh, very satisfied. And, and I want to thank Brad and thank you other guys in the room, because that was a real ball hog, this podcast, because I wanted to bug him about all the questions I've had. No, you're tearing, Lewis and you're tearing it up, man. We, we, got her, we got her done. Tommy, you feel primed for... Uh trivia showdown i didn't come to take part i came to take over there you go <laughs> <laughs> well you might need to make up a little tommy token maybe he needs two wins then I we'll need get a winner a two first yeah all right brad thanks man you gonna stick around for trivia I'll stick around. I, you know, I think you might be a formidable player because here's the yeah, other thing. I think he's a player. You and Spencer got the whole South Dakota thing going. <laughs> you got, and then Spencer throws a bone to guess. I don't know if he's going to throw a bone to Tommy, but I bet he's going to throw a bone to you. And I'll tell you, but I'll tell you another we'll thing see. to keep track of. The other day, Spencer was golfing <laughs> with Yanni, which is like the stupidest thing in the world. Two, I got two problems with it. Uh-huh. We're golfing on passes that you gave us. Oh, that, you still have those? Not anymore. Don't tell why I got them. That's a secret. <laughs> now listen, because I don't want to give away my, uh, Ooh, my whole situation. Oh, I know where that's coming from. So, but let me tell you the problem I have. I have a problem where I feel like uh, you guys are sharing information. And we're in cahoots. And it makes it that if Yanni beats me, then I have to have the shame of being beat by a golfer. <laughs> which is, which is oh. you'll never live it down. Yeah. Yeah. You'll never live it down. Did you guys run through a bunch of beers drinking golf or playing golf the other day? <laughs> Not Yanni. Did you guys? Cor- that, Corey and I were on team. Gets going. Corey and I were on team Straight Edge, and uh, Spencer and John were on team Tallboy. Okay. And uh, guess who won? Straight Edge. Really? Clear and focused. Yeah, but we had way more beers and nicotine than you guys, so we win. All right, stay tuned for trivia. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.